one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight, I am very excited to have on the show with me, Dr. David Bakavoy. David, how are you doing? I am so well, RFM. Thank you so much for hosting, and I am thrilled to spend the morning with you. This is awesome. Well, thank you so much. By the way, I just want to let our listeners know how this came to be. A couple, maybe three weeks ago now, you had reached out to me by way of private message on Facebook and suggested that we do an interview specifically related to the documentary hypothesis as it relates to the book of Abraham. Now, what on earth prompted you to reach out to me to do this interview? <laughs> this is great. I, you know, I, uh, it's a great question because um, I used to do, um, I used to blog regularly and uh, was involved with a number of different podcasts and I have not done anything along those lines for quite a while. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess it was first listening to the, um, the, the podcast that you did with Brian Hoglid on the book of Abraham. And then I spent, well, all 15 hours or whatever the total amount ended up being with Dr. Rittner listening to his podcast. And it just, I, I just, I just caught on fire again with my passion and interest for this subject. So um, honestly, to um, you did such a fantastic job with all of that and, and got, there was such a wonderful dialogue that was taking place as a result of it. I thought, would it be fun to jump in and, and share how my background in terms of biblical studies pertains and relates to this topic that you've been addressing? Well, it was a thrill for me to have you reach out to me because although we have never communicated directly or indirectly before, well, I suppose maybe we did on a message board a number of years ago when I was under the name Consigliere and you were under the name Enuma Elish. <laughs> yep, this is true. We have a we actually do have a long history in that sense. We both were um, active apologists on the old fair um, board, even before it was fair Mormon, right? Just the old fair boards um, defending the faith and having conversations with critics. And but that was uh, that was right at the beginning of everything. And when you say at the beginning of everything, what do you mean? Ah, you know, I mean the beginning of everything in terms of of the way that. Um, that Mormonism would fundamentally, fundamentally change because of the information accessibility provided by the internet through, through podcasts that, you know, John DeLynn was just getting Mormon stories up and running. I remember him going on the fair board, right. When he was starting the podcast and asking for apologists to come on and his show and, and discuss um, their belief in, in the historicity of the book of Abraham, the book of Mormon. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was just kind of at the beginning of how um, things would, I think, really change with the democratization of information that uh, social media pro would provide. Was this around 10 years ago? Um, even earlier than that, right? Um, Maybe 13. Yeah, probably. I'd say, I'd say, yeah, no, it had to have been, let's see, because I finished my... Um, dissertation finally in 2012 and it was long before that so um, but yeah I, I do remember those days and I remember interacting with you and 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 being very impressed with um, not only your ability to to discuss complicated issues in a in a manner that made it easy to pe for people to comprehend but in the way that you would um, 
even as an apologist, address and respond to critics like Dan Vogel and, and Brent Metcalf and others that were, were on those um, same boards as well. Those were, those were a lot of fun times. I remember those. I do want to give my audience a chance to know a little bit about you. I think that probably the majority of them will know who you are and be familiar with you. But could you tell us a little bit about your story? I know that you are um, a scholar, specifically in Bible studies, and you've done a lot of study in regard to that. I've read a number of your articles. I even had a book that you co-authored with John Twetness. And I think that was called Testaments. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, links between the Hebrew Bible and the, and the Book of Mormon. It was like a collection of many essays, as I recall. Yes, yes. Sure. Uh, so um, I was uh, just very briefly, I was born and raised in um, San Diego, California area. I was um, born uh, into a family that was very devout and active in the LDS faith. Um, I served a, an LDS mission um, in to Brazil. Uh, came back and um, followed my uh, girlfriend up to Utah because she was a student at BYU. We were married two months after I got home from my mission, and uh, I had I had been a, a terrible student in high school, so there was no way I was going to get into BYU or any other four year institution. Um, fortunately, BYU was um, in close proximity to a Utah Valley Community College, and I, I started there realizing that I needed some type of background um, that would provide some financial stability for, for my new wife and our family that we were creating. And so I, I began taking my studies quite seriously. Um, from there, I transferred to BYU, majored in history, minored in Near Eastern studies, and um, uh, then I went to uh, Brandeis University, a non-sectarian Jewish institution, for my master's degree in Jewish studies. And then once I was um, once I was involved with that, uh, it became very clear to me that I, I I wanted to be involved with LDS Church Education. So although the intent was to continue from the master's directly into the PhD program there in Hebrew Bible. Um, I took a break. I went to work for the LDS Church in uh, 2000 and uh, started teaching seminary in, in Grantsville, Utah, of all places, um, and uh, did that for four years and then went back to Boston as an institute teacher uh, working on my PhD. And as I already shared, I finished that finally in 2012. I spent 18 years of my life as a full-time employee for CES, or the Church Educational System. Um, I left um, a couple of years ago uh, for reasons we can get into later if we, if we want to discuss. But um, now, um, currently, I am the academic director of Prison Education for Salt Lake Community College, which means that I... I, I literally run a college campus inside the Utah prison system. Well, let me tell you that I share a great fascination and excitement about biblical studies. And of course, with my background, like your background, as those relate to specifically LDS scriptures as well. But the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, I know this is something that you have pursued and it's something you're very excited about too. Um, let me just share you share with you and the audience a story. I told this to you yesterday on the phone, but 
back in 1979, I just joined the church. I'm about ready to go on my mission to Japan at the end of 1979. And a fellow comes through town and he makes a presentation at the stake center on the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was something that was huge at the time, though I didn't know anything about it. I just joined the church. I have no particular religious background before joining the church. And he comes in and gives a slide presentation. He tells the entire history of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the first half. And by the way, this entire stake center was packed with Mormons who were all interested enough to go there on an evening for a separate meeting in addition to all the other meetings that Mormons have to go to. But it was packed in the stake center. I don't know if the overflow was filled as well. I was not in the overflow, but we were all seated cheek to jowl. And it got so hot in the stake center just from all the bodies that were present. But he gave a break. There was an intermission. It was like gone with the wind. This presentation was so long. He gave a break. We all went outside, cooled off some. We talked. We're very excited. We go back in. Absolutely everybody stayed for part two. It was once again packed. And in part two, my recollection is, is that the speaker, whose name, unfortunately, I don't remember at this point, but the speaker then started using the Dead Sea Scrolls to basically show the audience that the Dead Sea Scroll community at Qumran were pretty much Mormons. They had, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, yeah. They had the same Mormon teachings. They had the same Mormon organizational structure. It was a big deal that I recall that there were uh, leaders uh, in groups of threes over the congregation, and that was seen as to be a huge bullseye. No, oh, didn't, didn't they even, like, say, you know, that they were practicing baptisms for the dead and, and things like that, if I remember correctly, the, those early books and firesides? I can't remember if it was for the dead, but definitely they, they showed the pictures of the, uh, the places where there were steps going down and talking about that it must have been filled with water, and mm-hmm. these were where baptisms were performed. Mm-hmm. I do remember that now that you mention it. And there's just lots of wonderful things, but we won't go into that right now. But the, the thing that I remember so much about it is that I was absolutely enthralled. Nothing in high school had ever grabbed my attention like this subject did. And all I knew was I wanted to learn everything there was to know about it. Unfortunately, here I am out in Sumner, Washington. I'm really not very well connected or directed. And so I don't really pursue that. I mean, I am going on my mission as well. But it kind of lays dormant with me for a number of years until I get back into it when I'm in my 40s. But I absolutely found this subject fascinating. And I understand that you do too. And I'm wondering if you had a similar catalyzing experience in your past that led you in this direction. Oh, and I, I, I can connect so well with that, um, that story that you shared. And I remember being influenced by similar firesides and books growing up. It's just kind of my personality. And, and I think we're kindred in that sense is that when, um, when I become passionate about something, it's, I, I pursue it, you know, a hundred percent. I, I'm not a, you know, I, 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 in fact, to the point that I usually am so focused and driven, um, on things that um, I tend to burn people out around me. And it can be something as silly as, you know, Halloween decorations or barbecue. Um, But in my life, it certainly, um, I was just absolutely captured by biblical scholarship and um, ancient Near Eastern history. And, you know, that was really, um, you know, going to um, Brigham Young University, I began studying Hebrew because actually what took place, now that I think about it for a minute, is that, 
I began at UBCC taking institute classes. And uh, at that stage, and I hate to admit it, I was, I was a little bit of a, a, a cocky young returned missionary. And I um, had devoted myself at that point in line to, to a lot of study. In fact, on my mission, RFM, I would get up early. I would work very hard, of course, as we would, all of us. And, and I'd be exhausted by the end of the day, but I would still get up an extra hour and a half early than the mandated, mandated time period in order to study what I wanted to study. And I felt justified. It's probably the one rule that I broke on my mission. I felt like if I did that, then I could read what I wanted to read. Now, what I wanted to read were, you know, the discourses of Brigham Young and teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And I read both in English and in Portuguese, the uh, three volume doctrines of salvation set. So, you know, I, I became obsessed. In fact, I remember as much as I loved my mission, I kept thinking, I can't wait to get back home where I can spend all day long just studying the scriptures, studying Mormon history, and absorbing all of this information. I became so passionate about it. So by the time I got home from my mission, I felt pretty well versed in Mormon history and Mormon scripture and was a bit cocky. I took the institute classes um, to help myself so that I could transfer to BYU, but I went in thinking, uh, you know, it's going to be like a Sunday school experience, probably won't get much from these instructors that I haven't received already from books and articles. Um, but I had an institute teacher who knew some biblical Hebrew, and he began writing some Hebrew words up on the on the blackboard at the time and, and uh, showing how that connected to the scriptures. And I was blown away, and I thought, I must learn this language. I must learn it. And so, that's what I did when I transferred to BYU. I, I began taking biblical Hebrew, and I even took um, Ugaritic, which is an ancient Semitic um, quote-unquote Canaanite language while I was at Brigham Young University. And, and from there, it, of course, um, just um, exploded in terms of my desire to study ancient languages. I'm a Semiticist, so I had the opportunity to study Akkadian, which is the language of ancient Babylon and Assyria. I did four years of that as a graduate student, and um, I do all the ancient Semitic languages now at this point. At some point, you decided that you wanted to teach for the church educational system. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. In fact, that actually happened pretty early on in my life. In fact, even as a missionary, I thought I started thinking because I was so um, devoted towards um, scripture study and towards um, Mormon history. And it felt like I was a, a good teacher that that would be a, a, a that would be the course that I should pursue. So what happened is that I, I went in planning to do that. And, and, you know, I started taking the classes at Brigham Young University that prepare you for that career. And the first class that, at least at the time that you would sit in, I remember the, the instructor would actually break down the numbers and he would um, talk about all of the in-service programs that are operative throughout the United States, up at the U of U at, um, you know, obviously Brigham Young University, and how many people begin the process of of studying to become a seminary teacher for the church. And then at the end, he said, okay, out of all of these thousands of people or whatever, we end up hiring each year about 30, you know, is the number. So, and he literally said at this point, he said, so what this means for you is that it doesn't matter what your patriarchal blessing says about working with the youth and teaching seminary. That can be fulfilled in a lot of different ways. What this means is it's probably not going to happen for you in your life, so have a backup plan. 
And uh, I took that to heart. And my backup plan was graduate school at, at Brandeis University. And then once I was accepted, um, I ultimately decided to take that course uh, with the idea of getting the master's degree and the and the PhD and then um, probably returning to BYU at some point. David, if you could tell the audience a little bit about Brandeis University, because I know that you are not one to blow your own horn, but Brandeis University is a big deal, isn't it? You know, it it is a big deal, and I'm I'm very proud of the fact that I was um, able to study there with such incredible um, instructors and developed um, wonderful relationships with some other students uh, that um, have gone on to make quite the contribution to biblical studies. It's a it's an institution that was founded actually in 1948, which means that for the East Coast, that's a, a relatively new school. Um, but it is a non-sectarian Jewish institution. And what I, what I tell people, that basically means it's not the BYU of Judaism. Um, it was founded at a time when, unfortunately, there was still a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States, and that kept Jewish students from being accepted to Ivy League programs. So the Jewish community came together and said, let's create a Jewish institution. It won't be religious, so we will not be devoted to um, you know, Orthodox Judaism or Reform Judaism or any other type, but it'll be a Jewish institution um, that will recreate an Ivy League experience for our, our, our community. And because Judaism is a religion that has historically placed so much emphasis upon scholarship and the development of the mind as a religious quest, immediately Brandeis was able to uh, attract famous Jewish scholars, researchers, professors, um, to come to the institution, and it became a, a, a very important institution, certainly for what I wanted to study, which was, in fact, Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East. And at that point, when you applied there, you had already received an undergraduate degree at BYU? I was, um, I had almost finished my undergraduate degree in history and Near Eastern Studies at BYU. Almost had finished it, yeah. Okay, so I'm guessing you got pretty good grades. Yeah, I did. I did well. I did. I did well, which is surprising because I said <laughs> I barely graduated from high school. But, you know, it was really this. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for the LDS mission is that I it, it taught me how to study it. I, I learned how to communicate more effectively. And I it, it certainly helped me to mature to an extent that I could I could pursue education and, and follow the career that I did. Did you receive any advice from people or professors at BYU regarding the advisability of your going to study at Brandeis? Absolutely. In fact, um, I, the first counsel that I was given was from um, one of my Hebrew professors, and I'd already accepted the offer at Brandeis when he approached me and said, David, I think you should avoid going to Brandeis. And I, at that stage, RFM, I'm like, well, it's a little late in the game now at this point. Um, but uh, he then followed that up and with the statement that you will be studying with an excommunicated Mormon. Uh, and he is the only non-Jewish professor that they've ever hired for their Near Eastern and Judaic Studies department. Um, now, he said he will not be unkind to you. He's a very kind person. But uh, it's a clearly a reflection of how critical Brandeis is in their approach to the Bible that they would hire this, this man. And um, as a believer, you will not feel comfortable in that type of environment. 
And I was taken back, a little bit about back by that statement, but um, you know, and I already knew that um, you know, the professor that he was referring to, David Wright, and I'd I'd read a little bit of uh, about him and was familiar a little bit with his scholarship. Uh, and I remember turning to my Hebrew professor at BYU and, and, and literally saying the words, well, thank you for your concern. I will never buy into something like the critical model of the documentary hypothesis to understand the, um, the opening books of the Bible. But I do want to understand, I told him, how scholars interpret this material. And so away I went. Now, now later, I was also approached by one of my former religion professors at BYU. And he said to me, he said, David, I think it's wonderful that you're going to Brandeis, but, but don't study the Bible. Don't focus on the Bible. Choose something on the side of Near Eastern studies to, to have as your academic focus. Do comparative Semitics or focus on um, Akkadian or become an Assyriologist. Do, do something along those lines, he said, because we've never had a member of the church pass through a critical biblical studies program and come out with his or her testimony intact. And I dismissed that as well because I was, was very devout, but um, I wanted to focus on the Bible. It's what I, it was where my passion lay. So um, that was the counsel that was provided and I obviously ignored it. Well, you have been accepted. I mean, it does sound like getting accepted to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or some other incredibly prestigious university and then having people say, you know, you really shouldn't go there. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, and, and I understood and appreciated their concerns, but I felt like, um, I felt like, I felt like, I felt that God had opened the doors for me to have this, this unique opportunity. And I felt that my, my role should be to, to bridge those two worlds. Um, you know, we, we talked about a, a minute ago how this was kind of at the beginning of things in terms of social media and uh, the explosion of information that would be accessible to people. And I thought, well, my job is to go in and, and show that you actually can study these things, understand them, and still be a devout believer. I felt like I, my responsibility, you know, based upon the doors that had been opened was to not only show that, but to, you know, not that I would have all the answers, but that I could help people that were um, encountering those types of um, arguments uh, retain their, their spiritual and religious convictions of, of Mormonism. So I, I, I certainly felt like it was something that I was supposed to do and that you know, was, was my path that God had chosen. Well, let me jump ahead a little bit, because I think you were right about one thing and maybe wrong about another, as we've discussed, but you did go through Brandeis. You did graduate from Brandeis. And what degree did you have when you graduated there? So first I did the master's degree in um, Jewish studies. And, um, and then I went back four years later for the doctorate in Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. So jumping ahead, you actually did graduate, I think, both times from Brandeis University and still had your testimony, correct? Yeah. You were, you were still a believer in Mormonism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, that's not to say that I had not um, passed through some, um, some dark times of uh, faith crisis and whatnot. I mean, it, there were, I remember there, were, there was a time when I was, um, you know, 
towards the latter half of my doctoral program out in Boston. And um, I was teaching Institute at Harvard and MIT and Wellesley and, and loving my interactions with the students. But at the same time, I was struggling it spiritually because I, I, you know, I just trying to reconcile and figure out how to, how to bring these two worlds together. It was more difficult than I anticipated. And um, I remember my dad came out from California to visit me and knew that I'd passed through some struggles. And my parents had always taken, they're wonderful people. And they'd taken so much pride in the, in attending my, you know, BYU education courses, and I would get to travel around uh, in the early years for um, the Church's Know Your Religion program, and sometimes go to California, and they would come and they'd, they'd sit and they'd watch and experience a lot of pride as parents and to to see what I was doing with with my degrees and and whatnot, and um, so he was concerned, and I, he came out to to see me, and he said um, he said. He said, David, I understand. We had, we had this really beautiful conversation in the car as we were driving in, in Boston and downtown. And I, he said, I understand. I believe what you're going through. For so many years, you felt that you could, through your education and scholarship, prove that the church is true. And now you can't do that. And that's got to be very difficult for you. And I was very open to him. And I said, oh, Dad, I, I wish that was the challenge that I'm facing. It's that my scholarship proves that it's not true, at least not in the way that I had have, have always assumed. And that's much more difficult to, to, to handle and to address. And uh, he, my dad is a convert. In fact, you share a very similar background. My dad's an attorney and a convert to the church and, and a, a very open-minded man, a very kind, loving gentleman. And, and he just sat there for a minute and said, you're right. That is much more complicated than I, than I realized. And what I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what you'd come to realize is that maybe what Richard Bushman would call the dominant narrative. Yes. True. Yes. Yes. And that's not to say, now I still was a believer. I mean, I, I still was, but I just was, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. So I, be, I realized early on RFM that with my passion for Mormon scripture and Mormon and Mormon history, that I would have to continually shift my paradigm to accommodate new information that I was uh, obtaining through my studies. I realized that shortly after my mission because, um, you know, I was exposed to some challenging things and, um, and it was exciting and thrilling, but disturbing at the same time. So I felt, so I'd, I'd, I'd been doing that my entire adult life. And so it was, although challenging, you know, I, I, I still was absolutely committed to the church and, and to a belief. I just needed to, find a way that I could reconcile it. And that's in part why I wrote um, Authoring the Old Testament, because it was a reflection of how I had made that critical scholarship work with my devotion to Mormonism. I want you to know that I have at least the first volume in that, what I believe is a three-volume series. I read it in 2016. I marked it up. I loved it. I went back and reread some of the parts in it, especially relating to the book of Abraham, which we'll get to in the subsequent part of this interview. But yes, I can see exactly what you're talking about and writing how you managed to reconcile things for yourself. And this is definitely not dominant narrative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, and it's, uh, so, uh, and, and, and I, you know, it's no secret that, um, I'm no longer a, um, active participant in the LDS church. Um, I left CES and I, 
I, I can't imagine ever returning to church other than to support loved ones and family members um, when they might be there. And um, so uh, it, it's, I'm, I can't remember where I was going with this, but it, my point being is that, um, yeah, it, it, it has been a, a journey for me. I can, but I'm still, despite the fact of where I am as someone who no longer believes in an interventionist God and, I, I don't believe in an afterlife. My goal is spiritually is to try and make heaven on earth for humanity and my family um, at the, in the present and in the moment. But um, that having been said, I am still contacted by former students and, and even family members who have questions once in a while and, and want to understand how they can accept critical scholarship, but still rationally hold a belief in Mormonism. And I'm happy to have that dialogue with them. And, and, I, my point being is I'm not, everybody's on their own journey spiritually and I'm where I'm at now at this stage and happy. But um, my goal is to, is to help others along the way, wherever they might be. And so um, I, I think that's important to state for our audience. It's just, they understand where I'm at. I'm, I'm not one to disparage religion in any form. In fact, I um, once in a while will assign myself to teach um, in the prison, a world religions course where, We'll explore Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism, and you know, I and, and find the beauty that is within those various faiths and traditions. And I, I still feel there's beauty in Mormonism, and it certainly helps a lot of people live happy lives. And I think that's great. I don't want to get too far ahead in our conversation, but is it fair to say that it was not your academic studies and biblical studies that ended up actually leaving, leading you out of Mormonism? Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, that's a hundred percent. Now, what, what, why I'm so grateful for my biblical studies, um, uh, you know, that um, that I that I that I pursued is that they gave me the tools to be able to critically assess religious text and even statements that were coming from religious leaders in the church, in and to be able to handle it and process in a way that I felt um, comfortable and in in having a disagreement or a difference of opinion on and so my critical studies gave me the tools necessary to be able to 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 handle um that challenge but they were not what 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 led me in the direction no no it was was, for me they were they were social issues um um i could never feel the same about the church after 2015 um in the november policy that was issued when um, the church made it so that uh, the children of gay families could not be baptized. That was absolutely devastating to me. I just, I remember, um, re- I had become an ally at, at, at that time and had helped a lot of my students who were LGBTQ find ways that they could find a spiritual home in the church and in Mormonism. And I, I felt very passionately about that. And so when that policy was issued, uh, it was it was devastating to me. I remember that following Sunday morning, um, as I prepared for church and I was all alone and sitting in our living room, and I, um, I, I I just I broke down like a just weeping, just sobbing, and I I'm not one to to cry certainly to that extent very often in my life, but it was um, it was just so painful to me that um, the church would go in that direction, 
And I immediately approached my administrators in church education and I said, I got to put this in language that you understand. Um, I know with every fiber of my being that this policy is wrong, that it's not of God. Um, I still support and I, I want to help and I want to sustain, but, but this is, this is not, this is not right. And they appreciated the honesty, but then they were left with, well, what do we do with you now? And I said, I don't know. And so, you know, in their, in their defense, I, I, those, those men that I interacted with were very kind and tried to, to help me process that. And in a way that, so I could keep my job, which I wanted to do, but at the time, so it, it was a very difficult period for them and, and, and for me and for my family. It was uh, shortly after that, that my, one of my children came out, my daughter came out uh, to us as a result of that. It was after the 2015 policy and that really sh she told me that my um, openness and how painful this was for me um, gave her the courage to, to come out and, and to, to her, to us as a family and to the world as, as a, as a, as a gay person. And, um, now, um, in, I have, um, four children, um, two of my children are gay and, um, one of them is with a transgender partner. So we have, um, a lot of beautiful diversity in our, in our family. And I, I wouldn't want it any other way. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, but that, um, that was a big issue for me. And I'd always been, to be quite frank, I'd been more disturbed by um, those issues with the church and, um, of course, our, our treatment of African-Americans historically, um, you know, and um, also with um, the way that women are, are treated as second-class citizens um, institutionally. And so these were, they were social issues for me. And um, I had found ways of just making critical scholarship work as, as author in the Old Testament illustrates, but those were things that I, I couldn't, um, I, I just felt too passionately about it. So it, 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 those issues took me in the direction that, that we now find ourselves as, as a family. And that is, uh, largely out of the church, correct? Yeah. My wife stopped attending while I was still teaching and that made it, um, a bit difficult, but I, um, and, and for her, her journey is her own. I mean, she, was troubled by those things as well. But, um, you know, there were historical issues and, and polygamy and things like that, that, um, that had caused concerns for her throughout her life. So, um, she stopped attending and that made my relationship. And I, I fully supported that, but I, it made my relationship relationship with CES complicated for a little while. Um, and now um, my oldest daughter is returned missionary and I have two grandchildren thanks to her. And, and she is very active in the LDS church and we love her and support that. And, um, but my other three children are, are, are completely outside of the church. Can I take you back now to Brandeis? Sure. Let's do it. You've just been accepted to Brandeis university. By the way, I led into this by saying you were right about one thing that you would keep your testimony in spite of Brandeis. Although I oh, understand good. it had to be uh, adapted. Mm -hmm. to what you were learning, but you, you yeah. were still a faithful and believing Mormon out of mm -hmm. Brandeis as you were before Brandeis. But you had also vowed to one of your professors that you would never mm -hmm. accept or believe or buy into the critical biblical method or the documentary hypothesis. <laughs> yes, you were. And I love that you're, I was right and I was wrong because what happened was, um, 
I, I remember I was my very first semester of um, pursuing my master's degree, actually. I was taking a course on ancient Near Eastern law. And as part of that course with, you know, in the first couple of weeks, um, the instructor put up the slave laws that are found in the Hebrew Bible. There are different laws pertaining to slavery. And we started looking at them, comparing and contrasting. And for the first time, I took seriously what was in there because normally as a, as a Latter-day Saint, you don't focus on things like biblical slave laws, right? It's not something that we normally look at, but I was looking at these for the first time and seeing the discrepancies and realizing that they were interacting, that the authors of these texts were interacting with, um, with one another and presenting different and alternative viewpoints concerning justice. And it was just so obvious and clear. And, and from there I thought, okay, so these are different sources that appear in the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And once you open that door, you realize, okay, so there are different sources. Well, that is in essence, all the documentary hypothesis is, is it's the recognition that these five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy have different sources in them that were created by different authors at different time periods. And sometimes tell the same stories over again and repeat them as doublets. And sometimes they intentionally contradict one another. And so immediately within the first couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, well, that's the documentary hypothesis. It explains the data more clearly than any of the traditional models. And so it's just obvious. And now I have to reconcile that with my testimony. And so, you know, that it took, yeah, it, it, although I said that to the professor and I believed it sincerely, it only took a couple of weeks, RFM, before in that graduate program before I realized, okay, yep, this model works. I better learn to accept it. And, and it, it wasn't, it, it was strange, RFM, because on the one hand, I felt uncomfortable as a believer as my professors recognized that I would but on the other hand it was so thrilling and and exciting that this material was for the first time in my life really making sense in fact even a complicated book like the book of Isaiah once I wasn't trying to fit it into a Mormon paradigm and and think oh this passage is talking about Joseph Smith this passage is talking about the book of Mormon this is talking about Jesus once I approached it historically and looked at it from that angle all of a sudden the book like that actually made a lot of sense. And it was so thrilling and exciting um, that I was hooked. I was like, this is, so on the one hand, it's uncomfortable, but on the other hand, how fun is this to actually have these texts that you've studied throughout your life, um, you, know, you know, you know, make sense, I guess is the best way to put it. Right. Prior to the documentary hypothesis and your critical studies in the Bible, Isaiah really was a sealed book. Yeah. Oh, it is. And it is, it remains so for most Latter-day Saints, right? Because you you will pick out a, a verse that um, and say, okay, this is about Jesus. But then you look at the context around it and you're like, wow, he's talking about historical events and armies and Hezekiah and, you know, how is, and, and all of a sudden Jesus right here. And it, it just, it doesn't work. But then when you, approach it from a critical angle. And then you start to see the development of the sources, even in Isaiah and, and how they reflect historical time periods. It's, it's, it's not a sealed book any longer. And that's, that was really exciting for me. And that's it's why I continued doing what I, what I did, despite the fact that it was also challenging. 
Right. And I mentioned a sealed book somewhat ironically in relation to Isaiah, because of course, Isaiah chapter 29, mm-hmm. talking about a sealed book. Yeah. That yeah. he that is unlearned can mm-hmm. read, but the learned cannot because it is sealed, right? Yeah. Can you just say a little bit about critical uh, theory? Because I know a lot of people, when they hear the word critical, they think that the whole goal is to criticize the Bible. Excellent. That is absolutely correct. And um, that is correct in the assumption, but it is, but it is an incorrect understanding. Indeed, critical does not mean to criticize. It means to approach objectively. It means to try to interpret the Bible um, free of any contemporary religious, political, or social agenda, and instead uncover the authorial intent and how that text would have functioned and been in ancient times and how an ancient audience would have read it based upon the evidence that we can obtain historically, textually, and archaeologically. So it does not mean to criticize or critique. It means to read objectively. Now, you're at Brandeis University. You do actually end up studying under David P. Wright, correct? Yes. And he is the excommunicated Mormon that you were warned about. He was, indeed. Can you tell the audience a little bit about David P. Wright's background? You don't have to go into huge detail, but I know that I had, well, frankly, I had the barest exposure to David P. Wright as a member of the church. I'm still a member of the church, but back in my more apologetic days, I know that he had written some articles uh, using his tools, the tools that he learned, the same tools that you learned that he taught you. Uh, looking at uh, texts like, um, I think it was Alma chapter 13. Mm-hmm. And comparing the Melchizedek. It, yes, and comparing it with mm-hmm. Hebrews 7 mm-hmm. and showing the dependencies and the relationships between the two. And he ended up getting in hot water with the LDS church because of his publication such as that. Is that right? That's correct. Um, he... Uh, he did his graduate uh, study at uh, UC Berkeley and studied with Jacob Milgram, a very famous um, Hebrew Bible scholar who focuses a lot on Leviticus and ritual. And that inspired um, David Wright to, to, to study those topics as, as well and become one of the foremost experts uh, in the world on those topics as they pertain to the Hebrew Bible. Um, he began recognizing through his critical studies that um, that the traditional understanding of Mormon scripture that he held was not true. And it was very painful for him as a graduate student. Uh, he had gone into his studies, wanted to become another Hugh Nibley. And he recognized that um, that probably wouldn't happen as a result. And that was difficult, I know, for him. Um, but Upon graduation, he went, despite his devotion to critical studies, went to teach at Brigham Young University, which is shocking to some people, um, but um, given how he felt. But at the time, this was when Jeffrey R. Holland was the president of, of BYU, and he had made his famous statement that he wanted BYU to become the Harvard of the West. And so David still loved his community and felt connected and wanted to be a part of that still. And so off he went to BYU where he was eventually fired, not because of anything that he taught in his classes, but because in personal conversations, he had um, 
questioned um, the ability of prophets to foretell the future. Um, he had quite, he didn't believe in, in a universal flood. I mean, really basic things, unfortunately. And so he was let go. Um, and uh, it ended up being a, a good thing for him because, as I mentioned, he was picked up by Brandeis University and um, has continued his scholarship and, and contributions to the field in an extraordinary way. Now, some people will um, have, have wondered if, um, in fact, I have just been, I, you know, brainwashed by him or just, uh, you know, uh, just un uncritically accepted the models that he presented to me as, a, um, as my professor that I studied with. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, we studied, so I, I, I studied with him for two years with my master's degree and then did another um, three years of, uh, of coursework um, for my doctorate. And then, of course, there are their comprehensive exams. And I worked with him with my, on my Northwest Semitic comprehensive exam. And then I, I specifically chose David to um, be the advisor for my dissertation. Um, so to, he's obviously had a huge impact upon my life, and I, and I hold him in high esteem. Um, but despite all of those years studying with him, honestly, RFM, I would say that the times that we discuss things like Mormon scripture, or um, I could I could probably um, you know count on one hand, and that we're talking three or four times in all of those years because. It just um, was not our specific focus. I was there to study the critical models on the Hebrew Bible and to learn languages and skills that he offered. And, and we developed a friendship. And there were times when we had those discussions, but they were very rare. Um, I certainly didn't just buy into the same models that he held and espoused or that my other professors had. But what happens is that almost everyone who goes into biblical studies, regardless of what background they're coming from, they come from a traditional conservative believing background, whether that's Mormon or evangelical or even Jewish. Um, but when you sit down and start to run the data and you, you see it and you, you just inevitably recognize that it is the critical models make greater sense of the evidence and it ends up affecting the people that study there, which is why the advice that I was given by those professors at BYU is not unique. It's actually the standard um, that has been used for many years in conservative evangelical seminaries, for example. Um, evangelical scholars will go through and they will study uh, the history of scholarship and they'll focus on that or they'll focus on Semitic languages. And then they return to their respective uh, faith communities and are hired and present themselves as Bible scholars when they have never had to engage these issues carefully and critically, and uh, that's, that way they escape it. And that's why you'll see some very smart, very gifted scholars of Egyptology or Assyriology or, or you know, ver various topics um, that still espouse traditional conservative viewpoints at um, not only BYU, but um, evangelical seminaries as well. Well, it seems to me such a huge missed opportunity with David P. Wright, as you mentioned, the only non-Jewish professor, is it of a certain subject at Brandeis or the only non-Jewish professor at all? Oh, the only non-Jewish professor in uh, the Near Eastern Studies program, the um, 
Jewish and Bible studies program that was offered there. I mean, and, and that was at the time I, I haven't kept up on things, but um, yeah, it's quite the honor for him. Yes. He's a huge deal. Yeah. Absolutely. And, Br- and Brigham Young could have, they had him, they could still have him. They could. <laughs> I'm it's uh but um, you know, I, I, BYU does not, I'll, I'll just say this. They, they, but they, they don't want those, those sorts of ideas presented to students. They don't want professors writing and publishing on critical viewpoints and perspectives. The purpose of the institution is to um, educate Latter-day Saint youth and to um, give them skills, but also help them stay squarely in orthodoxy and in the faith. So it just, it just never would have worked out for him. Yes, there's this um, quote that you mentioned from Elder Holland some time ago when he was the president of BYU that he wants BYU to become the Harvard of the West, not mm-hmm. the Brandeis of the West, the Harvard of the West. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. um, but either he changed or he's expressing a different side of that when I think it was just last year at a presentation that he made, I think it was at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute, uh, some kind of gathering where he was talking to the different scholars and he made it very clear to them that if the time came when they had to choose between their scholarly pursuits and defending the church, first off, he anticipated that that time could come for a lot of the scholars in religion. But if that time came, they needed to go with plan B and defend the church, even if it contradicted their studies as a scholar. Do you remember that presentation he made? Um, I I don't I don't know that I do. I when was when was this? I think it was just last year. Mm, yeah, I I don't I don't I don't pay too much attention these days as to what's happening in the institutional church. But um, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Fair enough. Now. I want to keep going back because I know we keep getting ahead, but that's fine because we're going down a lot of important paths. But back at Brandeis, now you're studied under uh, David P. Wright, an excommunicated Mormon, and but you still want to do what it was that David P. Wright wanted to do, which was to teach at BYU, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. at the... And at the time, can you also explain to the audience, because you said you're teaching at the Institute buildings at these different prestigious universities, did you say Harvard and uh, MIT Wesleyan? Uh, yeah, I, Wesley College, um, Wesley which is, College. yeah, the the famous um, women's college um, out in uh, the greater Boston area that um, Hillary Clinton and others went to. But you taught at the Institute programs at those colleges? I did. Mm-hmm. And when you're teaching... For over half of my career, that was what I did, yeah. And how much is half of your career? Eight years? Yeah, must have been about that. So, yeah. Well, at that time, it had been most of my career. It had been spent doing that. And then um, I came back um, to Utah um, with the goal of of teaching at at Brigham Young University. Um, David, can you back up for just a second? Sure. Because you had explained something to me yesterday on the phone that I was not completely cognizant of. But that's the relationship between Institute and BYU professors all being under the same umbrella of the CES or the church educational system. Oh, good. Yeah, I think this is very important because when I tell my story and share it with some people um, and they're not familiar with the structure of church education, um, 
in, in, in within Mormonism, they'll express sometimes some shock that I uh, would consider after, you know, studying with this famous excommunicated Mormon and doing critical Bible scholarship that I would think that I could ever find a home at Brigham Young University, given that background. Um, but Brigham Young University is a technically part of CES or church educational system in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So CES is the big umbrella under which there are two divisions. You have the Brigham Young University schools and you have seminaries and institutes. So BYU is simply the more academic branch of CES. And I was already employed by CES. Literally what I was hoping to do was simply move into the more academic side of of employment given my background so that I could have uh, support to do my scholarship and publications that I wanted to pursue and attend academic conferences and things like that. So I, I think that's important to know. Yeah. I cannot help but know there's this issue that's going on, at least in my mind, that you are actually studying with an individual, David P. Wright, who was a professor at BYU and then was let go because of just uttering his non-orthodox beliefs, not in class, but just other people at BYU. And yet you felt that you would be able to find a home at BYU to pursue your scholarship after studying with David P. Wright. Did you ever wrestle with that dichotomy? No, because I felt that um, I felt that everything had changed, that the church had evolved from that time period, and that we were, I mean, naively so, but I, I, I still believed that that was the case, and I believed that it had to be the case because of the information accessibility that the internet would provide members. And so there would need to be um, individuals who could handle and address those topics and and say, I still believe, and here are some ways that you might want to consider looking at the matter. So that's um, that's how, that's how I felt, and at the time, and and I, as I mentioned, I I felt like God Himself had opened up the doors. I mean, I I had by the time I went back from my PhD, I had four children, um, and we're moving to the Boston area, which is incredibly expensive. Um, and uh, we're living and we're renting a, a, a small little home with one tiny little bathroom with four children, my wife, myself. And we have, it, it's such, such a tiny little bathroom. You couldn't even take a bath in, in the bathtub. It was so small. And, but we're able to make it work so that, um, so that um, I could have those opportunities because that my wife supported me. And we just both felt like this was what the Lord wanted us and our family to do. So here's what I'm envisioning. As I listen to you talk, you're an individual who has a passion about the gospel. You went on a mission. You got married, presumably in the temple, two months after you got back from your mission. You have children like you're supposed to. It is very interesting, the very Mormon way you said that, is that we have all these children, so I guess I better do something to get a job so I can finance <laughs> these kids that I already have, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I was, uh, I grew up in the, in the, as a kid in the seventies, right. And, you know, Spencer W. Kimball and all those ideas. And when you're as committed and devout as, 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 as you and I both were, you're not going to put off having children and to bring the spirit children down to your home. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you have this passion for teaching, you have this passion for the gospel. You go to this 
prep course or whatever it is where they say we get millions of people who are applying for this, but doesn't make a difference what it says in your patriarchal blessing. We only accept a very limited number. And I'm sure that's even a smaller number for actually professorships at BYU. But here you've been out, you've, you've gotten incredible, incredible degrees at incredible universities. You have qualified yourself for the work to paraphrase section four from the Doctrine and Covenants, you have totally qualified yourself to be head and shoulders above pretty much anybody else who's applying at BYU. So why wouldn't they want you? And also you've got this whole attitude is, this is the information that's becoming available. I've immersed myself in it. I have learned it. I've been through some rocky times, some dark times of the soul, but I've made peace with it. And I've got stuff that I know that I can contribute, that will be valuable, that will help members of the church in an academic setting such as BYU when they inevitably encounter these issues for themselves. Yeah, that. thank you. That's a very kind way of articulating it, but it's um, yeah, it's a good summary of, of how I felt. And I felt that I my goal was to, again, to, to build a bridge between these two um, disconnected worlds. And, um, and so I did. I, I, uh, when I applied to BYU, and I mentioned this yesterday, when, uh, to for the position of um, um, in ancient scripture, I had David Wright um, write a letter, read a letter of recommendation on my behalf, and the other letter of recommendation was submitted by um, Bill Hamblin, the very famous Mormon apologist. And for those who who know Mormon studies and its history, that's a rem- that's quite. I intentionally chose that because it was a reflection of of who I was. Bill Hamblin and I were actually very close friends. I studied with Bill as an undergrad at BYU, and um, uh, he's passed away now. And I, to this day, I, I love the man um, uh, quite deeply. He he meant a lot to me in my life. And um, you know, we had a little bit of a a falling out at the end as I began to be more open with my critical views online and things like that, and, and my criticisms of, of, of Mormon apologetics. But, um, you know, I always still very much loved the man. And, and he wrote that letter of recommendation together with David Wright. And again, going back to what I was saying, those who understand the history of that will recognize how extraordinary that was, because Bill Hamblin and David Wright um, argued back and forth in print, in Sunstone, about the legitimacy of historical criticism and how one could reconcile that perhaps with Mormon scripture. So the two of them had been, had been butting heads for, for quite some time, but I, it was a reflection of the, of the relationships that I had cultivated and where I was at in terms of trying to harmonize these two uh, dissonant worlds. Right. It's almost like these two letters are physical documents that show your ability to build this bridge. I, 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 I I hoped so. In fact, um, I got my computer because we're on a, we're recording this laptop. So I just pulled it up. Um, would you be interested in, in hearing um, Bill Hamblin's letter that he wrote on my behalf? I would love to. Because he he sent it to me, which is unusual, but he did. It was um, in April 2011. He wrote, "Dear Search Committee, I am writing to recommend that David Bakavoy be hired by your department." I have known David for 15 years since he was a student at BYU and have followed his work and progress closely. I feel I am in a good position to evaluate all aspects of his character and professional capabilities. First, I want to emphasize that David is a fine Latter-day Saint. 
In his personal life, he exemplifies those qualities of compassion and faith that are the hallmarks of disciples of Christ. I am confident that he will serve as an excellent role model for discipleship for our young BYU students. His decade of teaching with CES, culminating with his position as CES coordinator for the Boston area, confirms my assessment. Second, I've had the opportunity to watch David in a wide variety of classroom situations, institute classes, education week, and professional papers at conferences. Quite simply, David is a master teacher. He um, his, his mas- he is master of both the subject matter with his in-depth knowledge of scripture and LDS doctrine and of teaching methods. His classroom demeanor and performance and his relations with students are superb. Finally, David's scholarship is also first rate. He has published a number of LDS-related articles on ancient scripture with the Maxwell Institute and with religious education. His publications are always insightful and enlightening. He is also published in the Journal of Biblical Literature, the flagship journal of biblical studies. He has thus demonstrated that he is able to speak both the language of faith and the language of scholarship in his research. There are many professors who are great teachers and many others who are great researchers. David is both. In conclusion, I strongly and without any hesitation or qualification recommend David Bakavoy for a position in your department. He is exactly the kind of candidate religious education needs. Sincerely, William Hamlin, Department of History, BYU. That's a great letter. Isn't that beautiful? I, I just, it means a lot to me even to this day as I think back on my relationship with him and um, those feelings. And it, it makes me feel emotional even just, just to reread it because even though I'm obviously in a different place now, um, just su- such kind sentiments. And was, I was very grateful for that. Well, that seems like quite the entree for you to be hired. Um, yeah, I, I certainly felt so. I felt like it was just a done deal because um, traditionally, because BYU is under the umbrella of CES, um, when Institute teachers um, actually pursue a doctorate, regardless of what topic it might be, they are almost immediately picked up by um, BYU and brought into um, either ancient scripture or the church history and um, doctrine department to um, to teach. So I felt like, yeah, with... Um, you know, I taught at BYU for two years, and my um, student evaluations were were above the departmental average, which was already quite high. And um, given the scholarship and, and things that I had pursued, I, I did feel like it was just inevitable. So when that did not happen, um, it was it was devastating to me to to beyond words. It was as if somebody in my life had had passed away or died. David, so you're you're teaching at BYU. For two years before you apply for the professorship? Yes. Okay, that was one thing I didn't quite understand. Yes. So you've already got two years under your belt. You've got these great reviews. You've got the letter from Bill Hamblin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it doesn't happen. Can you tell yeah. the audience about that? Well, um, what happened was that, uh, yeah, I was, uh, um, I was uh, you know, I was approached uh, first by uh, Carrie Mulstein at the time um, and asked to come into his office and have a conversation with him. And um, he wanted to know about my feelings regarding the book of Abraham, the book of Isaiah and Bible scholarship. And he had some concerns um, regarding my approach to these matters. And um, he 
I can't remember if he was like the assistant to the dean. I think he was at that time or something. But anyway, he held an administrative position. So the fact that he had some concerns um, was my first sign of perhaps maybe things aren't going the way that I thought. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind. He was, he was very kind to me. I don't mean to disparage the man at all, but it was, it was very kind and it's his responsibility and stewardship to, to address those concerns if, if they are there. So I, I, um, I didn't begrudge him for that. It was a little bit frustrating to me because on a personal note, because actually I had been with CES longer than Carrie had. Um, in fact, I had, when Carrie was a brand new professor at BYU, I was out at teaching Institute at already for in the Boston area. And I remember bringing him in to talk with John Gee once to our Institute students there in the Boston area on a fireside on the book of Abraham. And, and afterwards, um, Carrie approached me and asked if I could, you know, sign some documents about what he had done so that he could show that to his, to the ancient scripture program to, you know, as he would try to advance through the ranks of that. And I was happy to do so. So I was a bit frustrated because I'm thinking, you know, this isn't right because I've been in church education all of these years, longer than Carrie and many of the other instructors that were there in ancient scripture. And I'd never had anyone who had attended my courses question my orthodoxy or anything that I'd presented in a classroom setting. And so to have that all of a sudden start to be raised as a concern, I was surprised, honestly, and and when that happened. But ultimately, that led to um, an orthodoxy hearing where I sat down with um, members from the Department of Ancient Scripture, and one by one, they asked me questions regarding my scholarship, my faith, and, um, you know, my, my relationship with David Wright and how my views maybe were similar or different from his in order to determine if I could be at BYU. And, um, I thought it went very well, but I later learned afterwards that um, uh, the search committee did not even put my name up for consideration for a vote by the faculty um, because of concerns that they had. Uh, So I wasn't even given a chance um, to be presented for a vote, and that was difficult. Can you tell me a little bit more about what happened during this orthodoxy hearing? What were their main concerns specifically? Well, I mean, one of them, you know, and, and Carrie was concerned at the time because I had, um, ex, you know, certainly expressed my conviction that um, that uh, the so-called catalyst theory for the Book of Abraham um, was a very logical way for a Latter-day Saint to approach um, the book, given the evidence, and that he was concerned about that because at the time he was very much um, a proponent of the missing scroll theory. And um, so there was that that was raised. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I remember um, I was asked the question um, by one of, uh, one of the professors who I considered to be a friend, and I had a very open relationship with him. And in front of the whole group, he really caught me off guard. And he said, David, um, if I Google your name and I, um, and Joseph Smith, the first link that comes up is you making the statement on a message board that Joseph Smith could be both pious fraud and, and prophet. Could you explain that dichotomy? Cause that doesn't make sense to me. And I was very taken aback by that because of our friendship. And I thought, you know, 
I wouldn't do that to someone. I, I, I just wouldn't. If I had a relationship with someone and I had that concern or any other, I would approach that friend first and say, can you help me understand this before presenting it to a whole group in a, in a, in a meeting such as that. And, and given our, our friendship, I was very taken aback. And I, and I, my response to that was, well, I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, but um, I had many conversations with Dan Vogel and that's the language that Dan uses. And I could see myself saying, even if you're correct, Dan, that Joseph Smith was a pious fraud, I would still believe in his prophetic role. And, um, and then one of the instructors interrupted and she, a female said, um, well, David, isn't that, what do you, what, isn't that concerning? Because what will happen if one of your students Googles and finds that and they find their, their, their instructor, um, making that statement and interacting with Dan Vogel's scholarship in that way, aren't you afraid that you may cause students to lose their testimony or their faith? And I responded to that. I remember I said, I said, absolutely not. What that will show is that their, their professor is intimately aware of the critical theories regarding Joseph Smith, and yet he still believes. And that to me would be nothing but a positive thing. On top of that, it will show that student that he or she does not need to fear engaging critical studies and models regarding scripture, regarding Joseph Smith, and, and not be afraid of those things. That it's something that they can learn about and still stay um, squarely within, within the LDS church. And that was my response to that. There was also a question that I recall, um, one of the instructors asked me the question, do you believe that God wants you to be at BYU? And I mean, how do you answer a question like that, RFM? You know, you're an attorney, right? I mean, if I say yes, right, then it, it's like a Jesus trap question, right? right. If you, you know, if you say, oh, yes, God wants me to be here then you're arrogant. And like, you know what, uh, I mean, what a terrible thing to say is, oh, God has ordained me to be at Brigham Young University and to teach here. But if you say no, you're applying to a religious institution that feels very um, passionate about following God's will. So, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm like, what a terrible question to ask somebody. I didn't say that, verbalize that, but in my mind, I'm thinking that. And and my response at the time was, you know, I... I don't pretend to, to have direct access to the heavenly mind. I don't, I'm not going to speak for God and what he does or does not want to do. All I can state is that I believe God opened the doors for me to pursue this critical studies path so that I could help. And if I'm going to do that, I have to be at BYU um, because no one is going to hire a biblical studies scholar um, to come and, you know, publish things about the Book of Mormon or, you know, analyzing it through the lens of of, um, of ancient scholarship or what it might be and things that I would like to do and contribute. So if I'm thinking it from that angle, then I will say, yes, I believe I, I should be here. And that, that was basically my answer. Were you getting any kind of feel from the uh, people who were asking these questions as to how they were taking your answers? You know, honestly, I felt like uh, they were good answers, and that they um, and that I I felt like I felt like I left feeling like the situation had been resolved to the point that I 
when I, I learned and was told by a friend that um, they wouldn't even submit my name for the faculty to vote on as a possibility to be hired, I was not only upset, but I, I, was, I was shocked. They tabled you in committee. Yeah. And, and what, and you know, it was, um, I, I sent uh, an email, a couple of emails to, um, to those involved and the people in ancient scripture expressing my disappointment and frustration. And um, I remember hearing back from one administrator and um, his response to it was, um, what we're most concerned about, David, is that you were given this information on our internal hiring process. This is this is unacceptable. Um, if we're going to move past this and and have an you know an opportunity in essence for you to be considered is, is the way that I took what he was saying. Um, we need you to tell us who who gave you that insider's information. And I, I, you know, I just, I was, I was shocked that they would, that that would be the response that I would receive from that administrator, but it was. And um, I, uh, you know, just, I can't even remember exactly how I responded, but it was just something, oh, thank you for your reply. And, um, you know, I, I just left it at that because I, you know, wasn't going to, wasn't going to play that game and, you know, try to, fulfill my dream by throwing somebody else under the bus. That's, that's not the way I would ever behave. Right. And the way I read that situation is that was a false hope that was being given to you in order to try and get you to give up this person, because there's no way that just because you give up the person who gave you the insider information, that suddenly all the issues that they have with you and David P. Wright and your biblical criticism and Dan Vogel and Google uh, suddenly go away and now we'll hire you. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It immediately made me think of Alma chapter 11. Uh, what is it? Uh, Behold these six aunties, which are of great worth, I will give unto thee. <laughs> oh, you're, yeah, I have, that's why I love having these conversations with you. That's fantastic. What a great analogy. I, you know, and it made things very complicated, RFM, because um, I was still with CES at the time, right? I just wasn't in the BYU arm of it. And so, um, Unfortunately, this situation, whereas up to that point, um, no one had ever ever questioned my orthodoxy. All of a sudden, by CES administrators, I was kind of looked at as um, as a black sheep, and they started to take note and pay attention. and And I would be called into the church office building and questioned about my scholarship and things that I had said and you know, online. Or I, I also began. Um, I when that didn't work out, I I I went up to the University of Utah. And um, did a postdoc at the U of U. I taught two semesters of the Book of Mormon as literature. It's the only time that um, the Book of Mormon has ever been analyzed for an entire semester in a public institution. And I was able to teach the Book of Mormon at the U of U of all places um, from a literary perspective for two semesters. And then I taught Biblical Hebrew, the language, and I taught a course. Um, I taught Hebrew Bible, and I taught. I designed a course called Sex in the Bible, and. Um, as an employee of, of, of church education. And um, when that information got back to um, administrators and CES, they were very concerned and called me in again and said, this is just not the, um, which is their right to do, but they said, this is not the um, image that we want to present 
um, in religious education, teaching classes like sex in the Bible and things like that. And so we're um, giving you an, an ultimatum. You can either choose to be a seminary teacher or choose to be a Bible scholar, but you can't be both. And, um, and make, you need to make this decision. And, and in fact, they also told me that we are concerned that you'll expose um, college students to biblical scholarship. And so um, if you make the decision to stay with us in CES, you're going to, um, we will not allow you to teach institute and college students again, but you'll be working with in the seminary program and teaching teenagers, high school students in a teaching position that requires a bachelor's degree. So, you know, here I was, I was facing all of these very difficult issues. And I, I said, you know, I said, this is, this is not, I, this is frustrating to me because the whole reason that I'm teaching these classes up at the University of Utah, and later I did the same thing at Utah State University was because you're not letting me work with college students in, in the church. And I feel like this was what this is what I did. It's the career that I that I pursued, and I have to justify my my studies to my family and to myself, and 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 use this degree. So when I'm stepping into a place like the University of Utah, I can't I can't say, oh, I'm going to teach a class on human intimacy in the Bible. That's you know that's something that would be make CES people comfortable, but you're going to use the word sex, you know, in the academy and, and, and things like that. And I, so a little bit frustrated by that, but they, um, you know, I, I, this happened over and over again, and I do not begrudge these men that um, put me through that situation. They were, it's, that's their, their responsibility. It's their job. It's what they um, are hired to do. And, and they were operating according to their strong spiritual and religious convictions of helping me, my family, and 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 the church itself, but now as I've stepped back, I look back on all of that RFM, and I realize, despite their good intentions, um, that was very emotionally abusive. And uh, what I, I I went through, and it it was it was a very difficult part of my life, which is why I'm 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 so happy now to have disengaged from from that. It's one of the reasons why I. Um, really stopped following not only stuff that was happening with the church, but in apologetics and even in Mormon studies for quite a while. I just disengaged because it was, it was just too painful. So basically when they gave you the ultimatum that it was, they didn't want you to poison the, the college students, but the high school kids were fair game for you. <laughs> well, they, it, the idea was that I wouldn't feel as tempted with, with high school students to get into the mysteries, if you will. Right. But, but at that point, you said thanks, but no thanks. No, I, I didn't. I mean, at that point, I stayed. I mean, I, I really, I, I stayed. I, I, st I still loved the church. I loved CES. And I, I spent my whole life doing this. And this was, uh, so, um, I, you know, and I, I was already, had moved my family out to Utah from Boston. So, you know, it was, it was I, I, I chose to be a seminary teacher. And, um, and did that, and I ended up loving it. I I, I love helping people, and I develop, and I've got a pretty playful personality, and um, so it, you know, I, I I enjoyed that experience. Although my heart did ache that um, other opportunities weren't given to me, but it um, it was still it was so it was not until the November two thousand fifteen policy where the first time I thought I don't know that I can keep doing this any longer. So you were still teaching seminary 
as of November 2015. Yes, I was. How long had you been teaching seminary? Um, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I jumped between, you know, I did, uh, let's see, I don't know. And I'd have to do the math. Uh, you know, uh, I'd been an institute instructor for, at that point, for probably five years, I guess, no, five or six years. And then um, I had taught seminary at the beginning of my career, and then I was doing it for a couple of years. At the same time, I was teaching at BYU. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been in the system for a while. Hmm. So I'm hearing that you've done everything to prepare yourself to be a valuable contributor to BYU as a professor, and they don't want you. They don't want you what you have to contribute. Uh, not only do they not select you, they don't even put you up for a vote. Mm-hmm. And then you can't continue to teach institute because that's the college kids as well, right? Yeah. So then you got to be, and I'll just use the word demoted, okay? Okay, sure. Demoted to teaching the high school students. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you only need a bachelor's degree to be a seminary teacher. Yeah. And you've got a doctorate. Yeah. From Brandeis. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet I just dug my I just dug in and said, all right, I, I went into this to, to try and help people. And because of my love for for LDS um, scripture. So um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna try and rock it to the best of my ability. And, um, and I did, and they were, they were, they were good years for me, despite the fact that I would be called in the church office building, like I've mentioned. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm going to, no, you're good. Good. You've mentioned this being mm-hmm. called into the office building to be talked to. Now that I want to get into, cause I've never even been to the uh, church office building. I've seen pictures of it and I understand that there are, important people in the church office building, but what does that mean when you were called into the church office building to be talked to about your teaching methods? Um, what that means, it wasn't my teaching method. It was never for anything that I'd ever said in the classroom. I, I mean, I successfully navigated that bridge for years and years and years. So I, I, it was never anything that I taught. In fact, um, no one ever raised, a student never raised any concerns about anything that I presented in the 18 years that I spent with CES. And, and all those men, and they're all men, well, there's one woman, actually, but um, the men and women, I, men and woman that I um, worked under during all of those years, directly under, either as principals or you know, institute directors or whatnot, who knew me and had observed my teaching, um, there was never a concern on that. I, they were concerns about, um, like I said, some of the courses I was teaching at the U or a post that I had made on Facebook that had been submitted to the church office building where I was talking about the historical Jesus or, you know, things like that, that outside of the class that they were concerned about. So what is that like? I mean, forgive my interest, but you get a, a phone call, you get a letter, you have to go in, do you put on your, I expect you put on your tie and your suit to go to the church office building and who do you talk to and how does that go? Um, you, you get, so um, CES administrators, CES administrators. Um, I didn't meet with any uh, uh, general authorities over these issues. They were all, um, they were all CES administrators. Um, and, 
let me pause for just a second. I am trying to find, I think I know the, remember when we were talking yesterday, we were talking about a letter that I had written. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I think I know what we're talking about and I'm trying to find it. So just give me a second. Okay. You go ahead and you look and I'm going to tell a story while you're looking. Okay. Okay. Because this has to do with sex in the Bible. By the way, it strikes me as strange that on the one hand, Mormons are so hung up about sex as a subject, as uh, illustrated by the, the situation you had with your, your, um, your course, the uh, Sex in the Bible. And yet, Mormons, as part of their plan of salvation, conceive of exaltation in the celestial kingdom as being entirely rooted in the heterosexual sex act. So on one hand, sex is not only part of salvation, sex is what constitutes salvation and exaltation in a very real sense in Mormonism, and yet they get hung up about the fact that you're teaching a course titled The Bible and Sex, or Sex in the Bible. So that's one thing. Are you still looking? I am, and I don't know if I found it. I, I thought I could find it, but I don't know that I have it. Okay, I've got another story to tell. Okay, guys, I'm teaching gospel doctrine class from 2006 to 2010. This is when, from when I'm 46 to 50. And I start with the Old Testament, and I go through the full cycle, I end with the Old Testament. And during this time period, and a little bit before, I become immersed in Bible studies through the learning company and watching videos, basically auditing classes taught by Bart Ehrman, and I got fascinated by that. I bought a bunch of books that he had read, and I, I devoured those. I found them fascinating. And then I started getting into the Old Testament with a series of videos from a class taught by Amy Levin, or Levine, um, and she was fantastic. And that got me into the whole Old Testament thing, which is somewhat, I mean, there's some similarities and overlap, but there's a huge, huge uh, different area of studies in the Old Testament from the New Testament, like the documentary hypothesis and all these other wonderful things. And so I'm incorporating these things that I'm learning about and that I'm excited about and that are shining so much light on the gospel and Mormonism, from my point of view, with my class members. And this is just a little podunk town in uh, Western Washington, totally out of the way, small ward. And, uh, but by and large, People are loving it. I mean, the people who aren't going to the bishop and reporting me for not sticking to the manual. But those people didn't like it. But there were a lot of people who really, really enjoyed what I was bringing to the class. And what I'm bringing to the class is all the things that I'm learning from all these Bible studies. And to finish it up, I finally got uh, released from the calling. It was in the middle of the Old Testament. Like I said, I started in the middle of the Old Testament and finished in the middle of the Old Testament in 2010. And we were on the book of Ruth. And so I figured I'd go out with a bang. And I decided to talk to the class about what it probably really meant when Ruth uncovered the feet. Was it of Boaz, by the way? Uh, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a shocker. Yeah. 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 It's, um, <laughs> it's an, an interesting, you know, because I, a lot of my research interest was on the divine council of gods um, in the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern traditions. And when I went to I, I pursue my, my dissertation, I knew I would talk on that because I had published quite a bit on, or that I would write on that because I'd published quite a bit on that. But then I realized from that it morphed into the Council of Gods in the opening chapters of Genesis, which deals ultimately with 
the story of um, the first man and woman in the garden and the discovery of sexuality. And that led me into um, a, a, a thesis where I had to explore um, human sexuality from an anthropological perspective and relate it to my academic research. And it, um, it was a fascinating journey, but that's the reason why I, I, I taught that course. I wasn't trying to just be you know, provocative. It's that I ultimately gleaned a lot of fascinating insights that I enjoyed sharing academically. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten a man of the Lord, or is it a child of the Lord? Yeah. Yeah. We won't go into all that, but yeah, I've, I've read some of those things and those concepts and those ideas really open up a lot of things in the Old Testament to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I found, I did, I found, I found this letter that I wrote. Um, Yay. I'm so I glad. Did. Okay. It's, um, I don't know. It's a bit, it's, it's a bit lengthy. Here's my challenge to you. Okay. I want you to read it, number one, without, first off, that's number one, read it. Number okay. two, don't omit anything. I, I know <laughs> okay. you're going to be tempted, okay? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. I don't All right. want any unspoken ellipses in this document. Okay. And three, right, to that. the extent that you're able to. No, no, you- I, I have this. This was, okay, so what this letter is, is I'll, I'll, I'll share it. Um, this, the first time that I, as a CES employee, was called into the church office building to meet with administrators because of, of their concern over um, my devotion to historical scholarship. Um, you know, I was told by one of the administrators that what I was doing was detrimental to the kingdom and, 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 and inconsistent with the spiritual approach to scripture. And here I am, I'm like, I've devoted my entire life to studying the Bible from this angle, and, and you're being critical of this. And, and instead, he's telling me that, you know, scholarship should be focused primarily upon studying the um, general conference addresses and things like that. And, um, and I said, I'm sorry, but I absolutely disagree with you. I said, my perspective on spirituality is much more consistent with what the prophet Joseph Smith said when he said that tr- Mormonism is a religion that seeks to embrace all truth. Let it come from whatever source it may. Therefore, when there is truth that is found in Bible scholarship, we need to understand that and bring that into our understanding of religion. That's my approach to it. And it's a spiritual quest. Anyway, they disagreed and um, they assigned me a number of talks that um, I was supposed to read and then produce a document explaining to them what it means based upon these talks to be a religious educator for the church. And um, so they gave me these talks and um, I, I looked at them and I was very, I was very upset. And so I, um, I wrote this response and I, I did send it to a number, even some, a couple of general authorities at the time. Is this the document you produced? Yes, this is, this is the document I I produced. Um, Dear brethren, I am grateful for the time you spent collecting this material for me to consider. I recognize that this took time and effort on your part. I know that this was done in the spirit of love and with a sincere desire to help me succeed as an SNI employee and at seminaries and institutes. You have my love and appreciation. I am more than happy to use Elder Johnson's talk on receiving correction. 
Elder Holland's talk on pitfalls, and Brother Brandt's powerful essay on maintaining doctrinal purity to formulate a statement that will represent my understanding of the expectations and boundaries of the teaching of a full-time religious educator. I'm going to speak with love and frankness, however, concerning the other talks I was assigned. It is now 3 a.m. my time, and I have been so troubled by this, I have not been able to sleep. To speak honestly and openly, though I support you and love you, I do not agree with the way I am being treated, nor the expectations you are presenting. I will preface my comments with the following official statement from the LDS Newsroom on Doctrine, quote, not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, or necessarily constitutes doctrine. A single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, but is not meant to be officially binding for the whole church. With divine inspiration, the First Presidency, the Prophet and his two counselors, and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the second highest governing body of the church, counsel together to establish doctrine that is consistently proclaimed in official church publications. The doctrine resides in the four standard works of Scripture, the Holy Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, official declarations and proclamations, and the Articles of Faith. Isolated statements are often taken out of context, leaving their original meaning distorted. End of quote. My concern is that these talks you have assigned to me construct what a full-time SN to, to help construct what a full-time SNI employee must conform to seem out of harmony with the direction we are currently receiving from the brethren. And so to be honest, I'm not sure how to respond in formulating a statement. For sake of illustration, I'll simply point out some of the changes, challenges I'm facing, though many more could be identified. For instance, Elder Mark E. Peterson's address on avoiding sectarianism presents his view of orthodoxy as one that rejects science. He uses the 18th century argument on the fixity of the species to support his position. However, even during Elder Peterson's era, genetics did not in any way, shape, or form suggest that species were fixed or bred true. This assertion, though well-intended, is simply incorrect and not consistent with the direction the current brethren have directed our focus as a church. Unfortunately, this is the same argument, by the way, that Elder Peterson used to criticize the civil rights movement and argue in support of the need for racial purity. These views have now been disavowed by the church. I should not be expected to conform to them by my SNI administrators. Moreover, Elder Peterson speaks out quite strongly against sectarian scholarship on the Bible, arguing that Latter-day Saints know more about the ancient, that ancient record than any other people. He seems to be referring to doctrine, which I certainly agree with, but I have a hard time responding to this premise as it is articulated. It just feels wrong, brethren. I believe that there, there is much we can learn from scholars and even people of other faith. Moreover, though I certainly share his praise of Elder Talmadge's work, Jesus the Christ, as a spiritual book of considerable merit, I had my 19-year-old daughter, currently serving a mission in Chile, read the book prior to her departure. The fact is that many of Elder Talmadge's views have been proven incorrect, not only in terms of biblical scholarship, but due to the fact that Elder Talmadge did not have access to the Joseph Smith translation. I could go on, but this talk just doesn't feel right to me, and I sincerely hope that I'm not expected to endorse these views from 1962 in order to continue teaching in the system. 
In terms of Elder Packer's 1995 address, it seems that this talk was chosen for me since Elder Packer specifically condemns my academic training, i.e. higher criticism. I understand his concern. It is a challenge. And, and yet, while President Packer feels such pursuits should be avoided, not all of the brethren have consistently shared his view. For instance, concerning higher criticism, Elder John A. Witzel articulated a perspective which I personally believe is necessary for us to pursue in light of the information accessibility that the internet provides. Because brethren, the intellectual views of scholars on how biblical sources developed are not going anywhere. Elder Witzel wrote, quote, in the field of modern thought, the so-called higher criticism of the Bible has played an important part. The careful examination of the Bible in in the light of our best knowledge of history, languages, and literary form has brought to light many facts not sensed by the ordinary reader of the scriptures. Based upon the facts thus gathered, scholars have, in the usual manner of science, proceeded to make inferences, some of considerable, some of low probability of truth. To Latter-day Saints, there can be no objection to the careful and critical study of the scriptures, ancient or modern, provided only that it be an honest study a search for truth. Whether under a special call of God or impelled by personal desire, there can be no objection to the critical study of the Bible. End of quote. It seems to me that rather than being pushed out for my training, that the system might actually want someone with a sincere testimony of the Restoration who published academic articles in scholarly venues concerning this approach to biblical studies. At least that has been my belief up till this point. Moreover, Elder Packer's talk also condemns evolutionary science as a philosophy incompatible with the gospel. I love President Packer. I support and sustain him. As I understand it, however, the church does not hold an official position on evolution. Thus, rather than ask me to conform to this ideal, I believe that we as religious educators should profess the church's current position that there is not an official orthodox stance on this matter. In fact, the church's recent official release on DNA and the Book of Mormon relies upon evolution to explain the challenge DNA research raises for the Book of Mormon's historicity. The article's detailed scientific explanation gives a tacit approval to the foundation of genetics, which is evolution. This is evident in the argument's supportive statements, such as the molecular clock used by scientists to date the appearance of genetic markers is not always accurate enough, and I'm quoting here, to pinpoint the timing of migrations that occurred as recently as a few hundred or even a few thousand years ago, end of quote. As a professional religious educator, I do not believe that I should be forced to take a position contrary to this new statement, nor should we give the impression to our students that in order to accept the truthfulness of the gospel, they must accept the positions advocated in Elder Packer's address that there was a universal flood, and that the story of Babel presents a historical account for the evolution of human language, etc. Again, from the LDS Newsroom, quote, some doctrines are more important than others and might be considered core doctrines. For example, the precise location of the Garden of Eden is far less important than the doctrine about Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. The mistake that public commentators often make is taking an obscure teaching that is peripheral to the church's purpose and placing it at the very center. This is especially common among reporters or researchers who rely on how other Christians interpret Latter-day Saint doctrine, end of quote. I believe we need to teach the doctrine and leave students to come to their own conclusions on the merits or lack thereof of evolutionary science. 
This has been my approach since I entered the system 14 years ago, and this is the first time I'm being pushed by administrators to represent another view. In terms of evolution and the literal versus figurative nature of the opening chapters of Genesis, I feel much more comfortable with the position advocated by President Hinckley, who said, quote, when the church requires, what the church requires is only belief that Adam was the first man of what we would call the human race. To this, President Hinckley added that scientists can speculate on the rest and that he recalled his own study of anthropology and geology with the words, studied all about it, didn't worry me then, doesn't worry me now, end of quote. Finally, I feel I should complete one of the stories to which Elder Packer referred, since it seems to parallel the way I have been treated first by BYU and now by SNI. Though not named, one of the men Elder Packer spoke of was religious educator and scientist William H. Chamberlain, who was forced to resign his position at BYU for teaching students such concepts as evolution and higher criticism, something that I have never done in 14 years. In 1926, President McKay wrote the following words about Chamberlain, quote, that a lofty, sincere soul like W.H. Chamberlain should have been compelled to struggle in our community and have been misunderstood by those who should have known him best seems to me to be nothing short of a tragedy, end of quote. To speak personally, as I face this most recent challenge to concerns on my own orthodoxy from my brethren, despite never having taught anything at all controversial to my students in 14 years of employment, I take much comfort in this assessment by the prophet of God concerning Chamberlain. Brethren, I love you. Please know I am not trying to be difficult. These are very important issues to me. As I shared with you, I truly want to stay in church education. I've always tried to be true to my charge. I support you in your assignments. Tell me what to do, and I will do my best to put your counsel into practice. However, these talks you are asking me to use to formulate a statement on what it means to be an SNI employee were given years before I entered the system. If the expectation had been that I renounce evolution, advocate for the necessity of a universal flood, and teach students that in order to believe the gospel, they must accept that the story of Babel presents a literal portrayal of the way language is historically evolved, I could not have taken a position in SNI. I certainly cannot promote these views in 2014, nor do I believe that the brethren would feel comfortable in having me do so. You have shared that you do not trust me to teach at an institute level for fear that I will share with college-level students ideas taught in biblical scholarship. Please remember, half of my career in SNI was spent teaching institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, without a single problem or incident. Thus, I do not believe I am being treated fairly. I can tell you that I that since I began teaching courses on Bible and on the Book of Mormon at the University of Utah. I have been approached by nine different institute students who have been disturbed that their teachers have taught them the very ideas you are asking me to conform to. I have shared with them that it is my understanding that the church does not have an official position on how literal or figurative to interpret it, the opening chapters of Genesis. That if they want to believe that God literally created the world in six days, that he literally created Eve out of Adam's rib, as a Latter-day Saint, they are free to accept such a position. If, however, they wish to accept these opening chapters of Genesis as inspired scripture that teach true doctrine, yet mix scientific observations into their own personal understanding of the way God created the world, it is my understanding that they are free to accept such a view and, and remain a member in good standing. Even though I have not been an institute instructor, 
nor identified as one to these students. They have all left feeling much better about their faith. Brethren, I strongly believe that rather than the direction you seem to be pushing me with these talks, that as religious educators, we should advocate for the position I articulated to these students, troubled by what they were learning in Institute. Sincerely, your brother, David Bakavoy. That is a great letter. Oh, thank you. It's been a long time since I've looked at it, but, and I apologize, it is kind of long, but I mean, that's, that's, what, that's where I came from. What I hear in that is you folks who are in administration for CES are telling me that I'm out of line with the leaders of the church for teaching, or actually not even teaching these things, but for believing them or talking about them outside of class. But really, you are the ones who are out of line with the leaders of the church, and I'm going to cite these leaders of the church to prove that fact. I suppose there is that. And I, you know, I, I, I do not want to disparage um, these men. I really don't. They, um, in fact, I, I need to stick the follow-up to this was that instead of, um, instead of asking me to create such a document, um, these men spent many hours sitting down with me one-on-one talking to me about my journey, talking about my, my viewpoints, doing everything they possibly could to help me feel comfortable and to stay in, in CES. And I am very grateful to, for the time and the love and the compassion that was shown. Um, these are not, these are not bad people. These are, these are men and women who um, sincerely believe that um, they are charged by God to, to, help build up the kingdom and the, the faith of the youth of the church. And, and they are committed to doing that. And they were also committed to helping me and my family every step of the way. So, you know, while I was, whereas I can talk about how I, yeah, it was emotionally a, a, abusive. That was not the intent. And, um, and I have nothing but love and respect for them. I, 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 I do. And I, and I'm, and I'm happy now that I'm in a different position and, um, I don't have to worry about that and they don't have to worry about me. And so no hard feelings at all, just the opposite, nothing but, but love. And when I, some of these men now, when I bump into them, I'll go up and give them a hug or, or whatever. And I, nothing but positive feelings about them. What I hear, and by the way, that's all to your credit. You're a very humble, humble fellow. Uh, apparently from everything you've described, you're much more humble than I am, but probably more than most people on the planet. But what I hear them doing is, yes, love, compassion, spending all this time talking with you, but the underlying assumption of these meetings is ultimately you're going to conform to what it is we want you to conform to, or you're not going to be teaching for the church. Yeah, well, absolutely, which is their prerogative. I mean, that's their stewardship. I mean, if, you know, I mean, if, if, if a, a teacher that they hire, that they pay, that is, is not teaching or not holding views that, um, they as administrators feel comfortable. They have every right to, 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 um, to give that ultimatum. I mean, that's, I, it was just as it was my right to, to say eventually that, okay, I, I, I can no longer do this and I'm going to go pursue another career. Right. And all that makes a certain degree of sense to me. If we're actually talking about what it is that you're teaching in your class, I think it's a little bit more removed when we're not talking about objections to what you're teaching in the class, which is all orthodox for your entire time period. But now we're talking about things that you're not teaching the students, but private views that you are communicating in other venues. 
Yeah, I agree with you. But the way that they, and it, but it gets to the way that CES um, employees are treated um, and viewed. Uh, it is made very clear when you accept the position that you are a uh, representative of the church and that you need to not only in, but outside of the classroom, um, not do anything that would cause the church um, embarrassment or cause people to lose their, their faith. I mean, it just comes with the territory. In fact, it's one of the reasons why um, historically CES would um, let women teachers go. Female teachers would be let go um, once they were, once they were pregnant. You know, you think about how legally precarious such a move is, but um, you know, CES teachers are treated in essence as as hired ministers. Um, for the church and and therefore the government's not going to step in and tell a religious group who they can or cannot hire as a minister. So um you know it and that comes with the territory and you accept that as as a, as an employee of CES that that's the expectation. So here they're giving to you all these talks and by the way you're you're commenting in your on your letter excuse me you're commenting in your letter on various talks including one apparently from the 1960s by Marky Peterson is that one of the talks mm -hmm. that you were given to review Yes mhm mm it specifically because he's so critical of um of biblical scholarship and saying that you know we as Latter-day Saints know more about the Bible than any other um people so there's no need to turn to to scholarship or people of other faith to to gain insights, we are the ones who have the information. It was a, a pretty remarkable statement, but it was chosen to me because of, of my background, which was concerning to these men. Right. Well, I want to pursue that, but I do want to tell my story here briefly because I was very, very into Mormonism, and I read so many books, and I particularly focused on books related to doctrine and history and more academic subjects, if we can call it that, within Mormonism. Every uh, year or so, I, w I would wait with bated breath in Austin, Texas during the 1980s when I'm going to college and going to the bookstore to look for the Sidney B. Sperry Symposium collection of all the different papers that had been presented, and I would go through those and all sorts of things like this. And it came to the point where I was reading so much in Mormonism that I gradually realized that by and large everybody was saying the same thing and that there was a certain defined area in which Mormon scholars were allowed to talk and beyond that they really did not venture very much. In fact, there were some general authorities such as Bruce Hermaconk who made it very clear that we know this much, this very limited amount, and beyond that we cannot know anymore. I think he said things like that, by which I interpret him now to mean that he could not know anymore. But whatever he knew is what the limit was that the members could know. So I grew up with that, but I continued to study. I branched out a little bit, but it was in around 2004, 2005. Once again, I owe this to Bart Ehrman. And watching these lectures that he was giving, this is just a basic New Testament 101 college course that he's giving. And I'm walking on the treadmill while I'm watching these. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone, try and get in some sort of shape while I'm learning something. And um, in some ways, that, that might tell you the importance that I initially thought that I would have watching these videos is I'm going to do it while I'm working out. But as he's talking, he is describing what are the very basic components that have been known and discovered over the last several hundred years in Bible scholarship. But of course, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know that because I have been spending my whole life looking at the New Testament exclusively through Latter-day Saint sources. And so I thought I knew everything that there was to know. And I certainly would have agreed with Elder Peterson at the time that the, the Latter-day Saints know everything about the, the Bible better than anybody else knows. But what I'm experiencing is something completely different, which is I'm finding out that there are mountains and mountains of new information that I'm finding out just watching this videotape from Bart Ehrman while I'm walking on the treadmill. And the image I had was it was like waves of information just breaking over me. And it was incredible. It was exciting. It was fascinating. And what I came to understand was that I had spent an awful lot of time looking at the New Testament only through Latter-day Saint sources and realizing how myopic and even incestuous those sources were as they related to the New Testament, that they were so small as far as their ability to understand the New Testament. And there was an ocean outside of it of information, which I had carefully shielded myself from with a little help from admonitions of leaders of the church, but that it was there and it was free for the taking. Yeah, I can so... Um, resonate with that story, RFM. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's really what what I experienced in my own journey in terms of scholarship. Uh, I remember the way that uh, that I became hooked as an as an undergraduate at BYU. I hear I was studying um, biblical Hebrew, and I'd taken a semester of Ugaritic, and um, was minoring in Near Eastern Studies, a history major, and I had never been exposed outside of my own readings to the documentary hypothesis or anything critically. And it, it had been very limited. Um, my focus had been, you know, I, well, I came home from my mission and I wasn't even interested in what Mormon scholars had to say. To me, if it, was, if it wasn't spoken directly by a general authority at one point in time, I'm like, why would I bother? Um, so that's where I was initially. And then I started to open up and, and realize, oh, there's some interesting things about the scriptures I can glean from BYU religion professors. And so I started to study that. Um, but I really, at least in those early years, never certainly ventured beyond that. But one day I was standing in the BYU bookstore and um, there was a book uh, by a, a scholar by the name of Robert Alter. And the book was titled The Art of Biblical Narrative. And I remember picking it up and I kind of scanned through the pages and, and he's talking about these things called type scenes. I'm like, whoa, I've never heard any of this or heard any of this before. And I, I bought the book and I devoured it. I just could not put it down. It's like the, you know, story of um, the Book of Mormon with um, uh Parley P. Pratt, right? He just sleep became a burden for me. Right? And, and it was that exposure that I realized there is a wealth of information that is out there outside of Mormon scholarship um, that has been produced for the past 200 years that can really help me understand um, this sacred collection of material that I have come to, to love so passionately. Right. And just briefly about the type scenes, when I discovered those, and I discovered those from Amy, mm -hmm. Amy Levine, uh, all of a sudden I'm starting to look at the Book of Mormon and I'm saying, well, look, here's Ammon. And he goes to preach to the king of the Lamanites or King Lamoni. And there's this huge kerfuffle there at the, at the court and there's this big conversion. And then we go over to Ammon now. And Ammon basically has the same thing happen. And I go from thinking, is this so much a lack of imagination on the part of Joseph Smith or just a coincidental, you know, similarity of events, if it's historical, 
Or is it an exercise in type scenes being used as a literary device in the Book of Mormon? Did you ever go there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, when I taught the Book of Mormon as literature up at the University of Utah, um, you know, we spent a lot of time identifying those, uncovering those. I actually published on Oh, on a type scene in the Book of Mormon. And I think it may be, I think when I explored that, it may have been the first article ever published for the Interpreter Journal that's um, edited by by Daniel Peterson. A dubious distinction. <laughs> yeah. I uh, Anyway, I, I know I, my, I did publish the first article to get that journal going. Um, and, um, but... Uh, to help get it going, but it's, um, but I, and I, I, I think if I remember correctly, that's, that's the piece where I explored a, a type scene in the book of Mormon. It may have been another publication, but yeah. I, so are you, exit, sorry, are you aware ahead. that, no, no. Are you aware that the interpreter has published a new article every Friday of the week for <laughs> approximate 1 million years? <laughs> I was not aware of that, but that is quite remarkable. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's all in the quantity. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting journey. I mean, you know, like I said, obviously I was very close with these, these men, Daniel Peterson and Bill Hamblin and, you know, um, you know, I just very close to these men. And, um, you know, I, 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 we obviously have very strong disagreements at this stage in life, but I, I don't have any negative feelings towards those guys. They do what they do and I do what I do. Do you have any stories you'd be willing to share regarding any close encounters of the Peterson kind? <laughs> um, you know, uh, you, you know, I, let me say this. Um, I understand why so many people are frustrated with, with Dan Peterson. Um, he is, uh, quite sarcastic and, um, you know, it's part of his, 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 uh, sense of humor. And, um, he, you know, it just, I understand it. I understand it. And he certainly as editor of, um, first the uh, farms review and then later the, um, interpreter, um, published, um, apologetic pieces that would, um, attack the messenger, um, more than they would the ideas that the, the um, critic was presenting and those, I don't, I don't, I don't want to overstate and say that it, that's all they did. That's, that's certainly not true. We know that's not true, but there were some that, um, that I found quite problematic and, and even openly discussed with him and, and posted about online and things like that. Um, so I understand, I understand the frustration, um, but I, I, I still see, despite all of that, I, I still see him as a, a good person. My have disagreements with, but someone that I, that I love and care about. And, and I, I hope he has a happy life. You are, you are aware that the radio free Mormon has bestowed upon him the sobriquet of Daniel Peterson, the artful Dodger of Mormon apologetics. <laughs> you know, I, that's right. I remember you mentioning that I, I, uh, when you first started going RFM, I listened to it. A couple of your podcasts. It was it was I was highly impressed, and then I just disengaged because I just wasn't, um, you know, I, I I I just haven't followed Mormon studies, let alone podcast or anything like this. It was literally your your um, your work with um with 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 Brian, and then later with Doctor Rittner that kind of got me excited again, and why I reached out to you. 
I want to come back to that here in a second. But I, before I do, I have a few other questions I have to ask you about that sure. fascinating letter that you read. Mm-hmm. There's a big pause there because there's a number of questions, but let's go with this one first. It okay. seems to me that based on what you're quoting versus what they are having you read, uh, that there appears to be a disconnect between different leaders of the church. And of course, I think you're driving at the heart of that when you're quoting the definition of scripture from the LDS church website or doctrine, doctrine from the LDS church mm-hmm. website. Did you ever get the sense that the administrators or CES might be treating you differently than the leaders of the church would be treating you? Um, it's a good question. I certainly, yes. Um, but depending upon the church leader, right? There are certain church leaders that um, are much more open towards um, critical scholarship than others. And I'm sure we all know who those are. So I, I would say it would depend upon, we were interacting with and you know going in these men's these administrators in their defense i would say that you know they were they are these are men that you know they 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 don't study outside sources at all their focus is on the general conference addresses and things like that and when you're and when that is your whole focus um your perspective on you're gonna you're gonna going to even follow up on at that time at least they don't think they were really paying attention to what was happening with the gospel topic essays and things like that um as closely as they later would um and that's why i was able to kind of talk about the you know dna and uh, the Book of Mormon issue, and and use that to talk about, how, hey, this is this is evolution that they're drawing upon here, um, because I don't, I'm I'm quite confident that none of them had ever read that essay at that point or stage, um, and just because their focus was really on what are the what are the current brethren telling us, and I think that's true for a lot of um, CES employees, just generally speaking. Yes. Uh- Forgive the question. What I was trying to do was to uh, ask you if you reached out to any particular church oh. leaders. Uh, n- no, not not any particular um, church leaders. I I did not. Um, Where did Elder Holland? You mentioned Elder Holland to me in a in a phone conversation we had. I thought it was oh, Elder Holland. Yeah, you know, it, I don't I don't know. I, my understanding was so I. Uh, when I after I went through the the BYU experience, um, I, I reached out to my very dear friend at the time, uh, Terrell Gibbons, and it told him what had happened. And um, he was very upset with me and felt it was quite unfair and concerned. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't have all. I don't have firsthand information on all of this. But it was my understanding that um, that. Um, either he or somebody connected with him reached out to Elder Holland regarding what had transpired. And in essence, he, it was concerning to him. And in essence said, you know, you're, 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 the cause is just, but I can do nothing for you sort of thing at this stage. And I, you know, and I, I don't know, I've never had, I've never met him. I've never had any conversations with him or any high ranking official in the church. So I, I, you know, I shouldn't speculate as to how they would feel or what they would do. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I hadn't, hadn't thought about these things for quite a while because my life has taken such a different course of direction. And, and it's, and it's a good thing for all involved, certainly for me and my family. And before we talk about that, 
There was something that you mentioned about D. Todd Christofferson. Oh, yeah, that's true. It was um, so um, when I taught the Book of Mormon as literature up at the U, of course, that drew a lot of press um, because it hadn't been done before. I mean, even the national press, HuffPost and whatnot was I was getting calls and interviewed. And um, so there were some number of articles that were, were published at the time and it didn't identify me. They none of them identified me as a as a, as, as an active member of the church, let alone a CES employee. Remember, this was a postdoc I was working on at the U at the time that allowed me to, to teach these courses. And um, anyway, all of a sudden one day, um, I, I got a message from um, Grant Hardy, Mormon scholar and, you know, wonderful human being. And he sent me a message on Facebook. And he said, David Bakavoy just quoted by an, an Elias apostle. And I'm like, what? And, uh, and sure enough, um, uh, he, he shared a link and Elder D. Todd Christofferson in his um, address that he gave a couple of years back to the Library of Congress on the Book of Mormon um, uh, quoted me from one of those pieces about the Book of Mormon. And um, that was, uh, you know, of course, fun to be quoted by a, an LDS apostle, especially when I'm struggling with administrators, you know, that are like, oh, you're not, we're concerned about your scholarship and, and, and stuff. And so that was kind of nice to be able to have that little feather in my cap. Yeah. And they're giving you conference talks by church leaders to read. And you're the guy who's being quoted by church leaders. <laughs> At least that one occasion. And I, I, I suspect that will be the one and only time in my life where that happens, RFM. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one more than me, I can tell you. <laughs> but, you know, it was cool. And I'm, and I'm glad. And, you know, I, I, these are, I, 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 I'm being very sincere. I mean, I'm in a different place, but I, I have nothing but um, warm feelings towards my years in CES, my students there, the administrators, and you know, it, it's a it, it, it's a difficult thing to navigate, and um, these um, I, I, people just are doing the best they can um, in 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 light of that challenge. A question that comes to my mind is, oh, okay, now I've got to think here. Uh, an insider's view to Mormon origins that was um, Grant Palmer. It was another Grant, yes, Grant Palmer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he was in a situation where he was an institute seminary teacher yes, for many years, and apparently he kept a lot of his feelings hidden, ends up writing a book. There's a great deal of criticism from certain quarters of him for flying under false colors, quote unquote, while he was a teacher for the church, even though apparently he was not a believer. At some point, he changed to being a non-believer, but he kept going for the purposes of keeping his job and his retirement based on what you've described. Do you have any particular perspective you want to share regarding Grant Palmer and how he handled things? Um, it's not, it's not the course that I took, obviously. Um, you know, I left, um, when I reached a point where I just didn't feel like it was, I was being true to myself, my family, to my students in the church. Um, I, I, I left CES and, um, and, and I, after 18 years, and if I would have hung on for, for another two years, it would have meant, um, you know, a much better situation for us in terms of, of retirement after 20 years and, and whatnot. But, um, and I, I left with an unknown financial future. I, I, I took a position academically and I, but 
you know, it was a $30,000 a year pay cut for my family, which was very, very difficult for us. Um, and then um, after the, after that happened, I, one of my children started to have some serious um, health challenges. And, and I wasn't sure what that would mean for us in terms of insurance, because I didn't have anything permanent set up at that time. So it was a very scary um, move, but it was the right one for, for me to make. Um, and it's different. It's different than what Grant did. Um, but that having been said, um, I don't think negatively of him for doing that, because having gone through a, a, a similar experience, I suppose, that, is, that he did, um, I recognize how challenging that is. It's very difficult. I mean, especially when you've devoted your entire life and career to, um, to the church um, and, and without it and, and then not knowing what your financial future might be in your family. And it just, that's, it's it, it just, it's hard. That is a hard thing to do. And so um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think negatively of him for, for going a different route. And I, it was my understanding based upon what he said that he was pretty open with CS administrators at the time. And they said, okay, let's put you in the prison system to teach Institute there. And you can just teach courses about Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I don't know, I, I, I'm not privy, but that's how, that's the story that Grant, that Grant shares. Right, um, and maybe I asked the question in a bad way. I really wasn't trying to elicit any kind of judgment. From no, you, no, 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 no. But it's it's as you're telling your story that I'm developing a greater appreciation for the challenges and pressures that Grant Palmer was was going through. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, what's interesting to me about Grant is that um, I did meet him a few times. We interacted a few times um, before his passing, and. Um, one time I was actually giving a presentation on the historical Jesus and talking about critical scholarship regarding the new Testament, which is also one of my great passions. Um, I was giving this presentation and it made him feel very uncomfortable and to the point that we had a nice conversation afterwards. And, and those who know Grant, um, and know his work will recognize that he was very conservative when it came to Jesus a very critical about Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, a Mormon um, history, but he drew the line at Jesus. Right? It, it, he wouldn't take those same critical skills and apply them to the New Testament and and Jesus because of his strong religious convictions that he kept um, in in that area, um, which was always interesting to me when that happens because from my perspective, it's like once you develop those skills and and you look at it that critically, I'm why draw the line? You know, you just, you, you've got to be consistent. And the truth is, is that the same challenges, well, they're not the same, but higher criticism presents challenges for traditional understanding of not only the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and, and specifically Mormon scripture, but it does the same thing for the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And so I, I've never been one to just draw the line and say, okay, thus far, but no further. Um, if 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 I'm using critical models to understand the Book of Mormon, then I should use them for the New Testament as well. So that's where we were very different, and it was, you know, everybody's on their own journey. But that always kind of surprised me, and and this won't surprise those who are familiar. Because didn't he write that? Uh, and I didn't read it, but he wrote a, a a book on coming under Christ or something that after after Insider's Guide. 
Yes, something like that. And it is an interesting thing, and I don't mean to be disparaging at all uh, to Grant Palmer, Um, but very interesting that he ends up sort of doing kind of the Mormon thing or other religions, but he was a member of the church and uh, then he wasn't, but he still maintained this Mormon attitude as it related to Jesus Christ, which is, I can see all these things as they apply to Mormonism, but I'm not going to take the same tools that allow me to see these things as they relate to Mormonism and apply them over here to this area. It's like there's a King's X Mm -hmm. on this area because this is my belief. Yeah. And therefore, I'm not going to allow my the tools that I have and that I've demonstrated and that I've used successfully over here to deconstruct this area, which is where I want to stay and where I want to believe. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I and I appreciate. Yeah, we're not being disparaging. It's an observation, and he's not alone in that sense. There are other post Mormons that are really, really strong devotees of of Jesus in the New Testament and yet they're constantly I see him on social media you know you know talking about the problems of the book of mormon and joseph smith and things like that and you know it's just it's interesting because you know the same the same skill set that lead us to the conclusions that we receive regarding the book of mormon um lead us to conclusions of the of the problematic um, nature of a traditional model for understanding Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah. I've heard it said that we think that we have our, well, everybody has beliefs, and we think that we have our beliefs because evidence has led us to those beliefs, and that's why we believe what we do. But I've heard it theorized that by and large, for the most part, people adopt their beliefs based upon more on feelings than mm-hmm. evidence and facts. And once they have those feelings and those beliefs, they then cast about to find the evidence and the facts that they can use to support their beliefs. Sure. Oh, I, we all do that. We all do that. And that um, is one of the things that you learn to try and overcome as a critical reader of sacred text. Um, that's the, you, you try to, to recognize the bias that you have, set it aside, and a good scholar, and this is the other thing, going back um, then, you know, um, Carrie Milstein in his um, responses to the Robert Rittner interviews sometime, um, did something that he's want to do, and that is uh, to divide scholarship, in, in, scholarship into believers and non-believers, right? Remember that essay that he did where he, he said, uh, oh, you know, that um, Robert Rittner, in essence, Robert Rittner comes to the conclusions he does because he doesn't believe in Joseph Smith and I believe in him, and therefore we come to different conclusions on these things. You know, paraphrasing, obviously, but isn't that what he said? Yes, he uh, he attempted to take his position, which is he views everything through the preconception that Joseph Smith was a prophet and could translate, and that's why he goes where he goes. And then I get the sense he seeks to draw a, an equation or a similarity to the other side of the coin, which is what he says Robert Rittner does, which is Robert Rittner comes to opposite conclusions, not because that's where the evidence is or because of Robert Rittner's scholarship. It's because Robert Rittner starts off with an assumption that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian. Yes. Yeah, precisely. He articulated that very well. And I, and I remember encountering that and I thought, well, no, that's, I, that's not correct. It's just, there's, it, you know, there, there really are, there's, it, the dichotomy is not between believer and non-believer, it's between good scholarship and scholarship that is, 
is is lacking. Um, that's the dis- that's the distinction because ultimately, what a scholar believes or does not believe um, shouldn't have any bearing on her interpretation of the past, or in the case might be a, a document or a text. Um, that that is the whole purpose of of historical criticism. It's to is to set aside our agenda and to try and uncover, despite our own bias, and what we would like to see happening, um, what is truly happening based upon the evidence. And so a scholar constantly has to check herself in, in that sense. And, and, and you know, I, I did that throughout my dissertation, for example, and I, I just had these really it, when I first came up with the thesis, I thought, wow, that's a radical way of looking at these at the text, the opening chapters of Genesis. But I'm probably not right, but it's an argument that should be made, so I should pursue it. And that's kind of what I told my committee and initially, and they approved the, the dissertation topic. And then as I got into it, every time I would find more evidence to sustain that thesis – I would have to pause and say, okay, am I seeing something here because I want it to be there? Or is this a legitimate observation? And you have to do that as a scholar constantly, because especially when, even if you're not trying to promote a, a religious agenda, if you have kind of a new or interesting twist or take on a passage that um, might draw some, some academic interest, you have to be very careful that you're not allowing your excitement to get in the way of your of, of assessment of the evidence. That's good scholarship. And it, so it doesn't matter if that Robert Rittner does not believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. That's irrelevant. What matters is, is Robert Rittner using good critical skills to show that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian? And the answer to that is obviously yes. So it's, it's, it doesn't matter what the scholar believes. And I reject that dichotomy that Milstein um, puts forward of believer versus non-believer. It's 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 really not. It's that's that's not an accurate reflection of what happens in terms of scholarship. I think that if I were to take his analysis or his illustration to its logical conclusion, what he envisions is a bunch of different people who are scholars running around with all their preconceptions and finding the evidence that supports their preconceptions and then publishing on it. So you've got all these different positions on the same subject based upon preconceptions, and there's no middle ground that scholars can ever really agree on because they are completely controlled by the preconceptions they had at the outset. Yep. There's a famous statement um, that was made by a, a Bible scholar who, um, who um, you know, speaking on this topic and, and, and the way you've described it, he said, it is true that we all have bias, but it is not true that all we have is bias. Not when it comes to historical criticism and it's in our understanding of the Bible and and how these texts developed. I've got to say that um, I understand what you're talking about, about about getting excited about something that you see that may be a new twist and being aware of the desire to find the evidence and make it support your new twist, right? Mm-hmm. But part of that process is being uh, a part of the scholastic and academic community and being able to bounce these ideas off of other scholars, right? Yes, precisely. Because they can give you an idea of someone who's not as thrilled with your with your new twist. <laughs> See, do they think that you got something, or do or are they saying, "No, nah, no, nah, that's not, yeah. that's not right." Yeah, and that's, that's right. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you. No, no, no. I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, you're exactly right. 
okay, well, I'll always make time for you to agree with me. <laughs> so. You know, it, you know, I, you know that, you're exactly right. And, and that's, um, you know, that's part of the problem that we see with um, Book of Abraham apologetics um, is that, um, you know, when, I mean, it's, let's call it as it is, it primarily comes from, you know, the church's two Egyptologists at Brigham Young University. And they are Egyptologists. They are not biblical scholars. I'm sure they're, they're smart men who delve into bi- biblical scholarship and read it, but that is not their academic training. Um, unfortunately, for, and it's, it's not even Kerry's fault, but he was hired by Brigham Young University to be a professor of ancient scripture, even though he's an Egyptologist. And, um, you know, it, that makes it, it a, 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 a challenge. I mean, even at... Um, it's just a challenge to be hired to, to be an expert in something when your academic training was primarily in an entirely different field of inquiry. And so a lot of times, and so it, what, well, let me backtrack and state that the apologetic work that they put forward is not just in the field of their expertise, namely Egyptology. Instead, they inevitably have to, as they analyze the actual text itself, delve into biblical scholarship because of its, you know, the book, the book of Abraham is connected with, with the Bible. And so they'll draw upon that. And a lot of the times the scholarship that they draw upon will be quite dated um, and has been shown to be problematic over the decades because scholarship is always evolving and, and refining and perfecting viewpoints. Um, or they're just misconstruing something and, and, and not intentionally, but it's just, it's just, it's not their field. It's not their, it's, 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 it's not their fault, but that happens a lot. And so to build upon what we were saying, I'm just thinking about this the other day, you know, that you see some of these articles um, that are put in the, you know, in BYU publications that come out from these men where they're dealing with these academic issues. If in fact, they were as convincing as some people might assume, then they would be put into non-BYU venues because it's not as if scholars just are prejudiced and think, oh, you know, this, this came from Mormonism. This book of Abraham came from Mormonism. Therefore, we don't want to touch it. My goodness, if we could establish that the book of Abraham was a legitimate ancient document, we would all be thrilled about that. It would be, it would be the most exciting discovery of, of, of all time. And we'd be so excited to glean from those, those verses and, and to augment our understanding of ancient Israel and the Bible and how things developed. No one would reject that offhand. We'd be just the opposite. It would be, it would be absolutely thrilling. So the fact that when these publications are put forward, that they're all internally coming through Brigham Young University or whatnot is, is it, it kind of tells you that they're not going to unfortunately be taken seriously for various reasons by the greater academic world. Right. And what I was going with was uh, that same line of idea, which was occurring to me as well, is that one of the beauty of, beauties of having an academic community is being able to bounce these ideas off of your, your colleagues. But it seems that when it comes to their writings about the book of Abraham, they take steps to not do that, to not allow their non-LDS colleagues to have any kind of uh, significant input or reaction or contribution to their theories 
about the book of Abraham. And in some sense, they, they are hermetically sealed with their writings about the book of Abraham from other non-Mormon scholars. And they take steps to not talk to non-Mormon scholars about them, as most recently illustrated by Kerry Muelstein's refusal, and apparently speaking for John Gee at this time, Kerry Muelstein's refusal to speak publicly with uh, Robert Ridner about the subject of the Book of Abraham. Yeah, and you know, part of why they do that, um, and this relates to, you know, I, I as I listened to, to Dr. Ridner, and I and I, I heard him over and over again express um, his frustration at, at the fact he even called himself at one point in your interview with him, he called himself a persona incognito. He said, you know, they, they will allude to me, but they will not speak my name. I'm like, you know, Voldemort or whatever from the Harry Potter series. You know, he didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. Yeah, you know, that way. Um, you know, and, and, it, it, it's shocking to him and it, it, you could tell it was offensive to him. And, um, and it is to anyone on the outside. But if we go back to that story that I shared about my experience at BYU, the fact this is not driven by a, a, a sense to belittle or to um, be disrespectful to someone like Dr. Ritter. Um, it's driven by what that same BYU professor asked me when she asked me the question, um, well, aren't you concerned that by addressing um, Dan Vogel's scholarship and interacting him with that way that it will draw your students' attention towards his work? Um, that's why they're doing what they're doing um, in terms of, it, it was so strange because here poor Professor Rittner's complaining about not ever being talked about. And then the first Thing that Kerry did when he did that issued that response through I don't know what is it like Fair Mormon or whatever it came through, you know he he said as one recent commentator you know instead of using Dr. Rittner's name and not even using his name despite those those feelings but the reason they do that is because they fundamentally view themselves as protectors of orthodoxy protectors of faith and if they publicly engage on a podcast or even like cite or or use this type of scholarship or even you know try to counter it um too directly that Sorry. it could draw the attention of yeah. believers anyway so to finish that part then um you know so in other words um they're not driven to do do something unkind it, they're driven because they to to protect the faith and to protect the souls of 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 their flock um by by taking that sort of a course and you know and that that's, that's just the way it's that's the way it functions yeah i've gone on record before in prior podcasts as trying to represent the opinions or position of leaders of the church such as boyd k packer mm -hmm. where their goal is to keep members in the church because nothing could be more important than the salvation and exaltation of members of the church. Therefore, they must remain members of the church. Therefore, whatever will keep them members of the church is what's important, even if that means we're going to not tell them all this information that we know about church history. If that information, even though it's true, could lead them out of the church, it must be kept from them. They must not know about it. So there is that aspect. And I think that's true. Unfortunately, I think what's coming to fruition is that more and more as they try and 
keep sealed off the members of the church from any outside information regarding uh, the church or the doctrine or the history. What they're doing is weakening the system, and it's a losing battle because of the internet, because more and more people are finding out about it, and then they are left defenseless. It's almost as if by pursuing the strategy that is continued to be pursued today, as we've talked about even by Guy and Muehlstein, of not allowing other people to know about even Robert Rittner's name or uh, the name of my podcast, that what they're doing is they are setting up bowling pins. They're making the members and they're making them the bowling pins and they're setting them up so that ultimately, sooner or later, and probably sooner in more cases than others, they're going to get knocked over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It happens. It happens over and over again. Right. And it's a, it's, you know, it's, it, 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 it doesn't have to be that way. That's, that's why I wanted to do what I was doing. I was hoping that it, that um, a different course that the church leadership could take a different course. But in the end, it's not, it's not my arc to steady, right? No, it's not your arc to steady, is it? No, no. And certainly not anymore. So, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a challenge. But that's why I say it is so regrettable, is that you're coming in there with an actual uh, solution to the problem that's being created by the Internet and the easy access to information. You've got it. You have both ends of the bridge. You've got one letter from uh, Bill Hamlin and another letter from David Wright. You understand the stuff. You've got information that you can give to LDS students to help them with these issues, which they are inevitably going to encounter. And yet the old playbook comes out, which is we just don't want them to know about it. Therefore, we don't want you to introduce it to them, even though it could be helpful to them. We'll just keep them in blissful ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I and one wonders, I mean, how effective that will be long term. It seems to be a, it seems to be a, a course that's going to, cause a lot of problems for the um, LDS churches as it moves forward. And Yeah, newsflash, it's already causing lots yeah. of problems for the yeah. LDS church and has been for at least 10 years, if not yeah. 20 now. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's like Cooper says to the mayor of Amity and Jaws, I think you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And it, you know, um... I, who knows what the future holds for that? I, I again, you know, my issues um, were were, fundam were fundamentally social ones. I, I mean, I remember, um, I remember watching the movie uh, Selma, um, and there's the, if if you've seen that film, I'm sorry, I have not. I got to okay. see it. It's fantastic, and and there's this really powerful scene where Dr. Martin Luther King is. Um, it's on the second march across the bridge, and and uh, there's so much threat and and anxiety in the air. And he makes a public statement calling upon all people, regardless of their faith, if they believe in human rights, to come join um, his people on the march over the bridge. And and uh, it's this powerful scene. Then when you see Jewish rabbis and Catholic nuns and evangelical ministers um, coming and joining. Um, they're all white, of course, and they join the African American protest. and And I remember sitting there watching it, and at first I was just so touched, and and, and it was such a moving scene. And then I became very sad, and I thought, well, where are my people? And and then I of course recognized why my people weren't there. Um, 
you know, we were dealing with addresses like the one I cited from Marky e. Peterson and, of course, others from uh, Ezra Taft Benson on linking communism with the civil rights movement. And uh, I just felt so bad. And then I, and then I took my family to the uh, BYU art exhibit. I, after my experience at BYU, I, I, I tried to avoid that campus as much as possible. It was just too painful to be there. But I took my family to the um, Norman Rockwell exhibit that was there several years back. And um, a lot of the exhibit focused upon his paintings that he had done for the civil rights movement. And it, the um, presentation began with this wonderful address by the president of, of Brigham Young University praising Rockwell for his contributions to the civil rights movement. And I sat there thinking, my goodness, you know, at the time that, that Rockwell was actually doing this great work, a president of Brigham Young University would not have been allowed to stand up and make those statements. And it was just those two points, RFM, that really hit home for me that I, as I was starting to figure out what am I was going to do with my life and my, my career, that um, I just said, I realized, you know what, I will never allow um, a religious authority figure to stand in the way of my commitment to human rights and what I know to be true for the advancement of society, regardless of their position. I will never allow, I will never do that. And so that was, um, that was a big turning point for me. So for, again, for me, it was like, I, I understand um, why, and I, why a lot of people, when they learn about the things that Dr. Rittner talked about, that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian, why they would stop and say, oh, well, therefore maybe he wasn't a prophet. Maybe I don't want to be involved in this church. I get it. I get it. I get it. That was never me. That mine was, I love what Dr. Rittner is saying. Joseph Smith couldn't translate Egyptian. Let's find a way to make this still work for us spiritually. And that's, 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 that's just who I am and what I did. We are never going to be able to get to the book of Abraham. <laughs> I know. This was what we were supposed to be talking about today. In today's interview, but it was so much more interesting to talk to you. I know the book of Abraham is very interesting. I went and read through it again last night. I've been doing some additional research and thinking about it, come up with some new ideas, uh, revisited some old ideas, but that's going to have to wait for another podcast. I do want to ask you a couple things now in closing, because we've got 15 minutes left. And one of the things I want to ask you in closing is uh, about John Gee's statement that he made recently comparing evidence for the book of Abraham with evidence for the documentary hypothesis. I don't know if that was a shot directed towards you or just toward the hypothesis in general, but what he said recently at a fair Mormon presentation, it was kind of an off-the-cuff off sort of comment that he made, but he wanted to let the members present know that there was more evidence to support the historicity of the book of Abraham than there is for the documentary hypothesis. Yes, and um, there's not a doubt in my mind that that was a, a, a comment that was directed towards me specifically, but also, of course, to a general audience. Because John and I have had conversations about this online and in person over the years. Um, one of our first ex exchanges on the topic actually happened at the Society for Biblical Literature Convention in Boston. And uh, I attended a, a session where John gave a presentation. He gave it um, a presentation criticizing the documentary hypothesis by using an analogy with Egyptian text. 
And so he took a couple of Egyptian texts and showed how he could splice them together and to create a unified, um, I'm probably expressing this wrong. It's been a while, but anyway, in essence, used these, a single document is what he did and divided it up into different sources um, and, and strung them together to try and show that the documentary hypothesis model that is used to understand the Pentateuch in mainstream biblical scholarship was incorrect. And I, I sat in that meeting and I listened to him and um, I actually raised my hand and I, I, and I said, well, I appreciate what you're saying, but remember the, the importance of the documentary hypothesis is not that it just simply uses different names for deity and different sources, but that there are parts that litter of the, of the text that contradict one another, that are direct contradictions. And it's really the contradictions that are more important than anything else. And, and your presentation fails to take that into consideration. Anyway, that's, anyway, I made that point and it probably didn't go over very well with him at the time, but, uh, um, that was our first exchange on that. And then that later, um, continued, um, when I was blogging and, and it, he has his own blog and he would say something about it and we wouldn't. And then I would talk about the documentary hypothesis and it, it, same, similar thing happened with Bill Hamblin um, exchanges going back and forth like this. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sure I was there when he said it. So um, at the fair conference, so I remember that moment. Um, well, and, and I suspect I, I, I if it wasn't directed to me personally, it certainly, he had me and my work in mind, at, at least to some extent. What um, do you think? What do you think of his observation? It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous because what he was really talking about, and he kind of does the same thing in the recent book that he did on the book of Abraham. He, he critiques the documentary hypothesis and shows that he fundamentally doesn't understand it. Um, and um, he usually will, will express it in terms of, of archeological evidence. There's more archeological evidence. Well, the documentary hypothesis is not an archaeological argument. It is a it is a literary argument that is based upon a critical reading of the doublets and inconsistencies that are found all throughout the Pentateuch. So um, to say that there's not any archaeological evidence for the documentary hypothesis, well, of course not. It's not an archaeological, it's not an archaeological argument. Um, but that's not to say that since, since we refer to it as a hypothesis or a theory, it's, it's used scientifically in the same way that evolution is called the theory of evolution. But that doesn't mean that it's just speculation. My goodness. I mean, scholars have been analyzing the Bible according to the principles of the documentary hypothesis for 200 years. And it is still agreed upon by virtually every biblical scholar um, that uh, may, it's certainly by every mainstream scholar that has ever come out of the academy for 200 years. So that tells you it's not just a hypothesis or a theory that lacks evidence. Um, now, I need to, to preface that and state that there are different documentary models that scholars adhere to. Um, so there is debate that is even happening to this day as to how many of these sources, for example, that are in Genesis, how many of them are actual documents that can, that are almost entirely preserved inside the book of Genesis versus how many of them are editorial insertions or just simply supplements 
but um, that's still, in essence, the documentary hypothesis. In fact, I actually published a very small but quick um, assessment of that in the in Biblical Archaeology Review a couple of years back, where I, I told people that the documentary hypothesis is not dead, even though a lot of conservative evangelical um, commentators try to represent it as such, and even now, of course, within Mormonism, um, because there are differences of opinion. It's not on what sources are documents and texts versus what are supplements doesn't mean that we're not using the documentary hypothesis. Everybody's using the documentary hypothesis. It's just there's debate as to how the sources fit together. And, and other than that, it's all, you know, everybody has the same understanding that the reality is, is that the book of Genesis, which is directly relevant to the book of Abraham, um, is composed of separate historical sources that have been amalgamated or put together by a redactor or an editor into the present form that we have it in the book of Genesis. Everyone agrees that that's the case. It's just the evidence is that clear. Yeah, I feel like Dr. Gee is talking about different forms of evidence and basically saying that the form of evidence that he's talking about uh, archaeologically or in other texts is really evidence and that the evidence that supports the documentary hypothesis, well, that's not really evidence at all. Yeah. So he can yeah. say, and I, I think the force of his argument, uh, which I think is not very forceful, but the, the point of the argument is, look, the documentary hypothesis is accepted by everybody, okay? Mm -hmm. It is something that a lot of people accept. And there's more evidence for the book of Abraham than for the documentary hypothesis. Therefore, the book of Abraham is even more corroborated as being true than is the documentary hypothesis. Yes. And I, and I am aware of the evidence that he has put out. And we can talk about that in our next, um, I think we'll talk about at least a lot of it, if not all of it in, in the next uh, podcast that we do. And suffice it to say that I disagree. I disagree with the, what he views as evidence, whether it's Oli Shem or the structure of covenants that he identifies and connects with Abraham's day or um, the genre of autobiography in, at the time of Abraham. What he has presented that pertains to biblical scholarship in terms of evidence is, is very problematic and, 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 and not legitimate. And where I, the only... The only evidence that I see that is legitimate for the argument of ancient authenticity to the book of Abraham is, um, is in the presentation of gods in the plural uh, in creation. And then this concept of a, a council of divinities um, that could be linked with Abraham chapter three. I, and that's a hit. That is a hit for the book of Abraham based upon what we know about ancient Israelite beliefs and biblical text today. It needs to be identified as such. Um, but the problem with, and, but that's the only one. The, everything else that I that that's been presented to me is um, is 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 just. It, I'll just use the term ridiculous. It's just I, we can show how problematic it is. But um, but that one's legitimate. But what needs to be stated is the significance of anachronisms, meaning something that is out of historical time, place, and setting. And I like to use the analogy of um, William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. Well, imagine that if that play, that play was discovered um, recently by scholars, and some people were arguing that Julius Caesar was produced 
during the time period of the Roman Empire. And they started to argue that there are hits. There are things that the play gets right that we can show to be correct through contemporary documents. The argument would still not be legitimate that the play was produced during that time period because of the anachronisms. So, for example, gosh, what is it? in the first scene or so, Brutus um, tells Cassius to, to tell him the time of the day, and there's a reference to a clock and the, the way the hands of the clock move. Well, that tells you that that document could not have been produced in Roman time period because they didn't have clocks. There's a reference in the play to the turning of the page of the book, and the book is a medieval creation. They didn't have books back then in Roman time period. So even though there might be some connections between the play and the ancient world, the connections do not override the anachronisms. And the anachronisms still have to be addressed because there's no way that they could be included in that document unless it is a later source. And that's what we see with the book of Abraham, because the truth is from the very opening verse where we identify Abraham as coming from Ur of the Chaldees, that is out of time period historically with Abraham, and it's not something he ever could have done. And then the anachronisms just continue. So, you know, even if John was correct on his assessment of covenants, on his assessment of autobiographies in the first century, on his assessment of Oli Shem and all of these other things that uh, have been presented, and which he's not. But even if he was correct on those, it still wouldn't negate the anachronisms that show us that this is a 19th century document produced by the prophet Joseph Smith. Right. And we're going to get into that fast and furious when it comes to the second podcast, which I hope we can get to recording next week. By the way, a couple of things that I want to say first off about evidence and this idea of privileging certain kinds of evidence. This is evidence that supports my position. The other evidence that supports your position. Well, that's not really evidence. This is something that I deal with on a regular basis as a criminal defense attorney. I will have people calling me and this happens. This is one of the most frequent conversations I have with people on the phone who are charged with a crime and they, maybe they're charged with sexual assault or something like that. And they will tell me, they will say, yeah, I'm charged with sexually assaulting this lady over here. And they say, but there's no evidence. There's no evidence that I did that. And I say, well, does she say that you sexually assaulted her? Yeah. And then I have to tell them, uh, that's evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm hearing the same kind of thing that John Gee is doing with uh, his, his privileging certain evidence as evidence and evidence over here from the documentary hypothesis. Well, that's not yeah. evidence. By the way, now, in closing, I'm in a fit of brilliance. I'm going to go back to my apologetic days, okay, and talk about this anachronism that you have found in, I almost said the book of Julius Caesar, but the play, <laughs> the play Julius Caesar, okay? Because I'm going to show why that anachronism actually proves that it's true. Okay. It actually, are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. And that it was written by a prophet of God. Okay. This is going to be totally, I'm going full John Gee mode here. Okay. okay. Because you said that it was Brutus who talked to Cassius to tell him what time it is, and Cassius refers to a clock. Mm-hmm. Well, Cassius, the name is remarkably similar, you must agree, to the name Cassio, which is a famous producer of timepieces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is perfect. That is, it's just, that's what happens. Uh-huh. Isn't that exactly what they yeah, do? Yeah, it's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. <laughs> and, and you and I know it because we've spent much of our adult lifetimes reading and taking seriously these arguments. 
That's a perfect description. Yes. And if that happens in the book of Abraham with Uli Shem, right? For mm-hmm. an example, well, all of a sudden on at first blush, wow, that's amazing. That's a connection. How could Joseph Smith have possibly known that? But I suppose if you take it one step further and see the same thing happening in Julius Caesar, you go, well, wait a second. That doesn't mean anything. That's just a yeah. coincidence for crying out loud. <laughs> well, yeah. And since you brought it up, we got to finish this one. We got it. Okay. The, the, um, the, okay. The, the, you know, the, okay. Now I'm starting to mix up the words, but the book of Abraham term, Oli Shim, right. Is the, is the place name in chapter one of the book of Abraham that has been identified by, uh, well, it was first identified by John Lundquist actually in the 1980s. As 1985. Yeah, with the, the book of Abraham, and then John he has talked about it, and he and Carrie insisted that it get into the church's essay um, on it, and it's um, and it's it's my understanding based upon what you have said, not anything that I've, I've read, that John has recently kind of backed off of that a little bit. I play the tape, yeah, but okay. he's definitely backed off. He's backed off of it in the sense that I still think he thinks that Uli Sum, which appears in an inscription from twenty two fifty BCE which is like 400 or so years before he believes Abraham lived because he's got him nailed down to 1800 BCE. But, but I think he still believes that in principle, but any of the handful of places that modern day scholars have identified as potential sites for Uli Sum, he has said, nah, he doesn't think that any of those are right. I think he thinks there's still an Uli Sum out there waiting to be discovered. Discovered, I get it. Yeah, but it's got to be in the correct location for him. Well, you know, I, I... I'd read those articles before and it may never really interested me all that much. And so finally for, I just went maybe two weeks ago and I looked at the exact actual cuneiform signs from the text that they're, that Lundquist first was identifying that from. And, um, you know, it is, it's fascinating to me because if you break it down, so the book of Abraham word is, is, um, Oli, Oli, Sh- oh gosh, Oli, we're, I'm getting all confused. Oli okay. Shem. Book of Abraham is Oli Shem, O-L-I-S-H-E-M. O-L-I-S-H-E-M, exactly. Well, and then the cuneiform tablet actually mentions a place called Uli Sum, okay, as the nominative form of that. Well, the U and the O, the reason why they're connecting it, it seems strange to, to non-Semiticists, but they're right. The, there is not, it's in Akkadian and in Akkadian, the language of ancient Babylon and Assyria, we don't have, um, we don't have O's like that. So the U and the O's are interchangeable. So that's not a problem, but then you're left with the syllable Li, and then you're left with, um, an S, um, that is actually not an S H sound, um, but an, an, an S I sound. Olisim, which is the the genitive form of that, and and so my point being is that when you actually break it down, all of the the only thing that those two words share in common is literally the syllable li. That is it. It's not even using the correct s. But interesting enough, in some apologetic writings, that s will be transliterated as an sh sound, so that it will connect more directly with olishum. From the, the from the book of Abraham. No, sorry, Holy Shem from the book of Abraham. So my point being is that that's the link. That's the link that that, that we're going to identify is that there's it, it shares literally one consonant together. It, to me, that's just not a strong, compelling argument to say that oh, Joseph Smith got this place name correct. I, I 
I don't know if I've articulated that well enough. It's a little bit linguistically complicated, but my point being is that it's exactly what you're talking about and what you did with Cassius and the, and the clock. And that's what's happening. And it's why it's, it shouldn't be taken seriously, unfortunately. Yeah, we will get into all this in more detail. And I agree with you. It seems to me after a lot of examination and a lot of hours talking with Robert Rittner is that um, it seems that the the case for the historicity of the Book of Abraham put forward by uh, John Gee and Kerry Muelstein and others um, consists of a small handful of very fragile proofs. Yes, fragile proofs that ignore the anachronisms and dismiss them. Yes, there's an awful lot that they don't talk about while they're focusing on this small set. And and the reason I reached out to you with excitement after this is because, um, you know, what Robert Rittner did and showed was from an Egyptological perspective, issues concerning the so-called translation of the book of Abraham. Um, where, where my studies come into place, into place is with the actual text itself. Um, and, and, you know, who was Abraham? Was he really a historical person? Um, what's the evidence for that or against that? Um, what are the biblical sources that are being used or found all throughout the book of Abraham? What does that tell us about the development of the text? What about the anachronisms that are there that reflect 19th century uh, biblical viewpoints that we can pull out and extract? Um, That's where my studies uh, are a bit different than him, but augment what you were doing. And I thought, that'd be fun to just get on and share. I'm excited about it. And um, it'd be fun to to help people be aware of that, not in the sense of of attacking. Here's the truth. RFM. I, I say this all the time. I was talking to my wife about it this morning before we began. I said, you know, I I love these texts. I love the book of Abraham. I love the book of Mormon. And and she asked me why. She's like, why? Because she's just not in the same place. And I said, I said, I love it because they're so damn interesting. And and I've devoted so many years to understanding how they were created and how they are contextualized historically. You don't just walk away from that. It's still you know, I don't, I love these texts. I don't love them in the same way that I used to at one point in my life. Um, but I still care for them. I, I'd say I love them every bit as much as some, as John and Carrie do. Um, but we just read them very, very differently. And, 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 and I'm, I, I enjoy, I love showing people, um, what these texts look like when you analyze them through the lens of biblical scholarship. And in fact, um, yeah, I, that's one of the things I, I do hope to, accomplish now that I'm returning is I'd like to do a book on the book of Abraham from that angle and reduce that for an audience. That would be awesome. I know from exchanges we've had in the past couple of weeks in preparation for that, that you are reviewing things and new ideas are coming to you even as recently as last night. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's fun and I'm excited and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the work that you've been doing on this. And um, it's just been so fantastic and I'm grateful for you know, the chance to share in this, in this wonderful venue. In fact, I, as you know, we, you know, most of my family members and friends are attorneys for whatever reason I'm drawn towards you people. And, 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 um, and they all, they all just adore your podcast. You guys all have a specific type of mind for breaking down arguments and looking critically at evidence and then presenting it in a way that a jury or a general audience could understand. And, uh, and so I love what you're doing. Thank you and appreciate a chance to share. 
You are so welcome. As soon as we're done here or a little bit later, we will get together. We will schedule hopefully another three hours and we'll be able to go into the book of Abraham itself, not only talking about the different apologetics that are used to support the historicity of the book of Abraham and how they do or don't measure up, but also interesting and fascinating insights that you have about applying your tools from biblical criticism and the documentary hypothesis to the text of the book of Abraham and seeing how that allows us to see things that we would not otherwise see. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'll give my outro now, which is, oh, by the way, David, sorry, it's been three hours. You were up early and uh, I got to ask you a question. Yeah. What would you like for the outro song to be? Oh, I, I, oh, yeah. I can let you think about that for a while. Nothing came to me. Maybe, I mean, do you have a recording from your band that we could use? Yeah, we could do that. I could send you something. That would be awesome. We'll use that, okay? Okay. And that'll be a big promo. And it's the uh, Dead Cowboys, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's so fun. We've gone back and so one of the things that, you know, that happened to me in my life is that um, I grew up um, playing guitar and writing these little songs when I was a teenager and obsessed with rock and roll. And then, of course, family, graduate studies, and everything else um, got in the way of that. And um, when um, my wife and I disengaged from, from the church and, and started our, our new journey, we started again going to um, clubs and bars and hearing local music musicians play. And one day she actually turned to me and said, you, you used to love doing that. You were so passionate about it. You should do that again. You, and I'm like, you're right, I should. So I went and bought a guitar and, um, and, and we, I created a band and we started playing um, these old songs that I'd written, most of which had been written like when I was 16 or 17 years old. And of all things, Brian Hoglid became our lead guitarist initially. So <laughs> I don't know this, but Brian was, who is my dear friend, and he became lead guitarist and we had a lot of fun. And then, you know, his, his kind of life got in the way of, of things and I've moved. And so anyway, the band members have changed, but um, we do go out. We, we recorded that initial album of original songs that I'd written and, um, and now go out and play locally in clubs. And it's just, it's just, it's so much fun. It's just to be, to be back to something in my life that I had loved so passionately and then had given up. So it's mm -hmm. been, it's been a great journey. Well, pick your favorite song, send it to me. We will okay. close with that song. And until next time, by the way, there's going to have to be a part two to this. But until next time, David Bakavoy, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air. I've been here in the city, I know, for much too long. When all they ever play out here are those top 40 souls. And so I'm packing up my bikes and I'm headed out for the sun.
Union, Memphis, Tennessee. 706, you met the Tennessee where you could play some of that rock and really music for me. Turn your back. 706, you met the Tennessee where you could play some of that rock and really music for me. Tennessee